I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, no fan of the false flag, Bionic. That's true. And we are your dynamic duo of alternative Christian media. Christianity! Or I guess it should be Jesus. Jesus! There you go. Jesus! Yeah, that's like a new type of Christian music. Jesus! Jesus! Well, that's what it's all about. It's about Jesus, isn't it? Yeah. And I hope that people are drawn closer to Jesus by what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we have a topic that is near and dear to my co-host heart that he has been focusing on, speaking on uh, to spellbound audiences. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about Operation Gladio, a legacy of false flag terrorism. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, I know we've alluded to it a lot. I know the listeners have heard you find every opportunity when we have a story to bring it up and throw us out some factoids out yeah. there and overwhelm us. Well, well I know. But you, you want to do a dedicated show for uh, this. Yeah, there, and, and there's a good reason for that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's interesting. You know, the, the way that I started my sleep paralysis speech back at the last days conference is I asked everybody who had sleep paralysis, and pretty much nobody raised their hand. Then I got done, and Everybody raised their hand. It was, you know, yeah. and there was like a third of the people there, maybe yeah. maybe up to a half. But they didn't uh, want to do it in front of everybody? Well, it was just, uh, they had never heard of it. It was oh. kind of the big thing. Oh, okay. And and Operation Gladio was a lot like this. Um, it was so big and went on for, for uh, from about 1945 mm-hmm. up until about 1985-ish. I want you to hold that. Because okay. I'm going to lead you through this discussion, Uh-oh. and we have some preliminaries to get out of the way first, okay? Right. Yeah. Uh, like, for example, I want to thank some good friends of ours, some Futurian friends, uh, David and Gail, for their donations to FutureQuake this week. Mm-hmm. And particularly to David, he had earmarked that for, for, uh, for CJ for mm-hmm. the conference. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you now for getting CJ. I'm sure he appreciates it, yeah, too. Yeah, he does, too. Uh, I, I think he's about full up. Well, you all have made an incredible help you've made a big big difference in him and his life as the conference has so Mm -hmm. just want to thank you all for having been responsive to him and i want to thank gail too and also i want to thank mary in nashville who uh, just found out that they ordered a book set as of today with uh, andrew napolitano's book and uh andrew hoffman's so appreciate that for you all and uh we're ready to get into this discussion um, this was something that you uh, prepared uh, a uh, presentation for the recent Politics of Religion conference. It, it was part of it, yeah. P- part of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was something I knew you were you were really ready to, to give and it was a fascination with you. And uh, when you gave it, everybody was really was on the edge of their seat. Uh, that watching dude in the them. back who was snoring. Well, <laughs> I don't count. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, oh, that's funny. I hadn't had much sleep, you know. Uh, but, uh, no, everybody was just fascinated with it. They learned a lot of things they mm-hmm. didn't know, and it started changing their view about other stuff I could find out. And it dovetailed so nicely in the other talks that we had there. Mm-hmm. And so you had said it would be a good idea to, for us to do a show dedicated to at least covering the Operation Gladio part for yeah, now yeah, of this. Yeah, I felt like, 
Operation Gladio was so big I could have given two 90-minute presentations right. on it and just hit the high points. Yeah, and you were like me. You walked away with a bunch of information left over <sighs> that you couldn't cover. You know, I you know I I gathered all the information from my talk, and then um, uh, gave it. You know, kind of put it together and yeah. pared out about 50% of it, and then gave it, and it was three hours. Yeah. To to some friends of mine, and then um, I pared it down again. And it was about still about two hours, and then I cut huge sections mm-hmm. of the Gladio thing, uh, the Operation Gladio information out, and um, I, I just feel the I almost feel burdened a little bit by it to just to get mm-hmm. it out there in some format. Hey, it's, I know, can relate to that. Skywriting or f- flares, well, writing a pamphlet, something. It, it'll be it'll be there for both our Futurian listeners. Mm-hmm. You know they'll they'll know it now from yep. the show. Um, one thing I'd just like to say as we get started in this, and I appreciate you helping me with some questions to sort of lead, lead us into our discussion, which we're getting ready to go into, mm-hmm. just just to, for people to keep in perspective. Uh, if you're not interested in this stuff, some people say, well, I'm not interested in conspiracy stuff or this that. I want to hear more prophecy or I want to hear this or that. But this information was critical for me in understanding my Christian worldview because of the the uh, passage that you and I recite almost week after week in Revelation 18, mm-hmm. where it talks about how the kings of the earth and the great merchants of the earth conspire together and how they use their sorcery or pharmakia mm-hmm. by which to deceive the nations of the earth. And I personally believe that passage is talking about what has gone on since the time of the Tower of Babel, hmm. that since there's been institutions like government and things like this, that governments and commerce have worked together all through recorded history uh, for their own purposes and agenda. And what they do, the way they do it, is deceive the people of the earth. And that sorcery can take a lot of forms. It can be the food we eat. It can be drugs. It can be propaganda, all Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. Basically, what is that? Sorcery alters your reality. And what these people do alter the reality that we have, and that's how we're deceived in the world to further the purposes. And false light terror is a way that the public has their reality altered of what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And what people have to really look behind the scenes to figure it out. So to me, this has political and has prophetic implications, spiritual implications. And if anybody should be really informed on what's going on, I believe Christians should. And I think you do as well. And know the real truth, even if it's uncomfortable, uh, yeah. which people are used to on future quakes. So having said that, I, I want to jump into our material, and I want to ask if you would give us a brief overview of what the political backdrop was in World War II, uh, you know, particularly in the European area, mm-hmm. uh, right up to the end of the Cold War that lent itself to something like Operation Gladio. Uh, well, I mean, you kind of hit it on the head there. The Cold War, uh, basically, what was going on, and this is a, I think this is the lens that people have to sort of keep in mind. Um, they didn't. There wasn't this great idea among both sides that it was a battle versus good versus evil. There was a little bit of that, but really, when you get right down to it, read people, uh, you know, William Colby's biography a little bit. Uh, he refers to that idea, but then he's okay with just doing stuff that's kind of, you know, morally, like, like just totally ridiculous. It's uh, just red versus blue team at a point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Walter Bettel Smith, whom we'll, we'll we'll look at here later on a little bit, uh, he figures heavily into Germany's stuff um you know he had he made no bones about the fact that it was okay to employ you know ex nazis and ss officers in in the service of uh fighting the communists uh because they were good at what they did and um um you know 
Uh, one time, Alan Dulles was asked, this is a great quote, Alan Dulles was asked, you know, how he could sleep at night employing people who had killed millions of people, you know, in torture mm -hmm. chambers. And he said, well, it's not like I'm going to invite him to my club. He doesn't really seem to be that bad of a chap, quite honestly. Um, so within this, within this thing, yeah. there was, it, it was a, it wasn't, it, it, it's constantly told to people uh, and, and sold to us in history as a good versus evil. You know, that's sort of intrinsic mm -hmm. to any sort of in-depth study of, 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 of the Cold War and especially 1945 mm -hmm. and on. But the intelligence people didn't really see it exactly that no, way. No, they were, they saw it as, as a completely different thing. Uh, a great quote, actually, from that is uh, Ancient Monty Woodhouse, uh, who said uh, he was responsible for Operation Ajax. Maybe we'll look at it in another mm -hmm. show. Yeah. Um, he went to the CIA and asked them for help in overthrowing the uh, Iranian government. And he said, uh, he said, rather than trying, rather than being accused of trying to pull British chestnuts out of the fire at the Americans' expense, I decided to tell them, I decided to go the terrorism and communist front. Uh, knowing that they bite, hmm. so he didn't even bother to say that you know the uh, British, the British representation, the British idea of going into Iran was, um, you know, about oil. He just hmm. said, "Look, I'm going to try and sell it to them as communism because I know that's what they're concerned about. They're not going to hmm. want to help out Britain because we have oil problems." Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's all pragmatism, and and, can, and that's really the point. Yeah. Can I make a quick comment about this when mm -hmm. you get into the nitty gritty here? Um, I think I told you just recently, I've been trying to look in the scripture to see how Jesus would look at this whole thing about these competing ideologies. Mm -hmm. And I am of the view that this whole idea that we were sold from the 20th century at least on, that there's always two competing world ideologies that are struggling, whether it's communism and capitalism or liberal conservative, you know, Democrat, Republican, is basically just a lie from Satan. Because there's nothing in the Bible that says that's how the cosmos is ordered. Hmm. It, it is good and evil. I mean, it's a battle in, the, in this, but not between two world ideologies that are going at it. And in fact, if people know the Hegelian dialectic, where groups that are really powerful and want to manipulate people will create some kind of position, a thesis. Mm -hmm. They will create opposing uh, position, the antithesis. They mm -hmm. purposely put them in battle so then they can create a synthesis to move people in the direction they want them to go without them being aware of it, mm -hmm. whether it's world government or whatever. And I think that is part of a satanic thing, that this whole thing we've been sold for the last hundred plus years of, well, it's communism this week, it's Islamism next week, it's whatever you want to, you know, make it for us. I think he, I think God was trying to do that with Jesus, with the, or that Satan was trying to do this with the, uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees, because they both tried to get Jesus to come over and join them. And Jesus said to beware the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Hmm. So he said he didn't want to play ball. And as we find out, behind the scenes, they are plotting his death together. Even though they're mortal ideological opponents, two worldviews, mm -hmm. they are working together because Rome, which was the New World Order globalist, to keep their position, they were willing to get rid of him because he didn't play ball. Yep. And so I see these groups battling, sort of like the Sadducees and Pharisees. They're worldview groups. They want to co-op people for their end. But as we know with intelligence agencies, behind closed doors... They can do a lot of stuff together without the public being aware of it. So well, and that's really—I guess—that's really the idea that I want to—I uh, want to impress in people's minds. The whole—the whole bill of goods, um, the whole bill of goods of you know good versus evil, mm -hmm. really was 
there were certainly quite a few people who believed it. You know, my, yeah. uh, you know, many of my relatives and well, you know, everybody's relatives. Yeah, you know, in America, sure. Um, but it sadly, when it came right down to it, that was it was it was red team versus blue team. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and. Mad, like Mad Magazine used to have Spy versus Spy, where mm-hmm. they had the guy with the white hat and the black hat, mm-hmm. and they would do the things to each yeah. other, dirty tricks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so with all of this red team versus blue team idea, their idea was that, um, you know, capitalism is our team, mm-hmm. um, the West is our team, their team is communism and the East, and not even not even necessarily communism, because you know we've had lukewarm relationships with China for, you know, mm-hmm. up and down for almost. Almost since about ten years after its uh, inception, yeah. um, uh, but it was really this sort of idea: the Soviet Union was a boogeyman, and and, and all that stuff. Um, and from this from this idea, people were just okay with sort of doing whatever, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. They were trying to fight this idea, uh, this ideal. And from this idea, they came up with this with this sort of threefold plan. One was start and establish stay behind networks. Uh, and I probably I'll define that here in a this second. This is just after World War Two. Just after World Smoke War Two. Smoke cleared. Mm-hmm. We we got rid of the German menace. But now we have the red menace that's mm-hmm. taking over the part of the continent. Yeah, we need to establish uh, stay behind networks uh, in in countries of importance and generally build this large um, spy network, if you will. Um, hmm. You know that's interesting because our larger the U.S. became more dominant with the British as long as well basically dominating Europe, and we our armies were occupying all these lands. We, mm-hmm. Some of these countries, we set up uh, provisional governments, you know, that mm-hmm. we were caretaking and whatever. Mm-hmm. So it, the the history books show that we had this great restraint. We were the first sort of empire that voluntarily withdrew our power from these lands, benevolently to give them back to their own governments. But that's not really all true, is it? We actually put our folk in place, just not where they could see it. Well, I would even go. Stuff. Yeah, I would even go, maybe perhaps one up on that. We put, uh, we took and uh, financed people, and in many cases trained them, you know, with American at American bases and with American tactics and stuff to be able to influence the governments in the way that we wanted them to. Mm-hmm. Um, the, we'll get if we get time to. I hope we do mm-hmm. um, get time to uh, get to the strategy of tension and look at that uh, okay. specifically in Italy. Yeah, we'll really see that. But there were three things. There was kind of set up this big sort of spy and covert action network. We did that uh, as well as MI6 and the SAS uh, to uh, to really try and um, sort of ramp up the propaganda. You know uh, mm-hmm. of of left versus right, and really use that to much more to our advantage. That was sort of something that was something that really became really heavily used in World War II more than anything else. You know, mm-hmm. there was a lot of these famous broadcasts that went on where they would say things that you know it's come to our attention that Hitler has like herpes and stuff, and because uh, it was it was demoralizing it was demoralizing to the German troops to have this rumor about mm-hmm. it with you know kind of a disease like that and it really it, it really made the uh, the english troops buck up you know there mm-hmm. wasn't a word of truth to it but they would use those sort of sort of things mm-hmm. um uh, and then the third thing was to was to sort of deal with it uh in a transnational sort of way like borders really don't mean anything 
You know, mm-hmm. we're going to try and erase the borders when it comes to fighting this ideology of, of communism. Well, and that's where they got the concept of the free world, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. You're right. Right. One uh, in a future show, perhaps we'll do. I'm still doing some research on it, but there's a thing called uh, uh, Operation Condor where they had three, that was a three-phase program, was to basically, mm-hmm. when it comes to fighting communism, eliminate the borders. Uh, that, was the mm. first, that was the first phase. And then the second phase was to uh, share intelligence as if, you know, South and Central America was just sort of one giant country yeah. when it comes to communism. Right, you know? right. Uh, and then the third one was to train, uh, to train assassins, basically, to, to travel nationally and transnationally. Uh, to take out people that Operation Condor deemed uh, a menace. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so that's, in that similar idea of Operation Condor, that's kind of where Gladio came up. They said, okay. uh, they, they saw they saw um, people coming, they saw the, a Soviet invasion is imminent, and that's kind of, mm-hmm. they started planning for that. So Okay, so, so now you can tell us what, basically what Operation Gladio mm-hmm. is about, okay. Okay. Um, well, what what was Gladio? What is or was Gladio? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to keep a couple of my, things in mind. Uh, the way Operation Gladio, it was it was in rumors in the rumor mill for you know forty five fifty years, mm-hmm. but there wasn't any hard evidence for it. There would be people, uh, this guy Richard Brenecki uh, uh, and Philip Aggie, two ex CIA guys, yeah. who would come up and say, "Well, you guys don't understand how big this thing is. It's blah 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 blah," and tell it to the public, and everyone would go, "That is the craziest thing I have ever." heard and they would get roundly dismissed so for the most part that it was has been successfully kept under wraps until recently sure sure there's a there's actually a uh, a, a three-hour documentary done mm-hmm. by the bbc that i recommend people watch okay it's called and and i'll give you the name of it here it's called uh gladio um just gladio it's it's, okay. it's three three hour three-part documentary it's done by time watch so if you type in gladio time watch bbc uh, it's still on servers in the UK, but it's okay. it's it's banned here in this country. It's banned. Yeah, um, it's 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 pretty bad. Um, and okay. and you'll find some of the information here that I'm presenting tonight mm-hmm. from that thing. Okay. Um, but uh, I bring all that up to say that nobody really knew about Gladio until um, uh, about 1990, 91. This sort of thing, this thing came out uh, right as we were invading. Uh, uh, well, invading right as we were kicking Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, mm-hmm. right? All of these revelations came up, and it started in the Italian parliament. Um, that somebody said, "Look, we found these documents, and you guys aren't going to believe it." So this is like around 2003 or so. Uh, no, the first, the first invasion. Oh, the Gulf War. Yeah, the Gulf kicking War. him out of Kuwait. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. okay. Um, um, so uh, you know, this thing came up, and said everybody was like, "You are not going to believe this." Uh, the craziest things. That the left, the left being in this case communists, yeah. was saying, and uh, this crazy, super nutty right wing guy who somehow yeah. everybody thinks is credible, in prison, who's saying the same thing. Yeah. It turns out they're true. They're right. The communists and the extreme right wingers were right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, one of them. This guy, yeah. uh, he was, an, he was, he's an unabashed. He doesn't apologize for his actions. Yeah. He's actually, uh, it's a guy named. Vincendo Vinciguerra. He's really into this thing called Evolian spiritualism, okay. uh, which uh, dovetails nicely into uh, fascism, which he's a oh. huge supporter of. Okay. Um, but this idea of Gladio, uh, Gladio actually turns out after a lot of this thing come un- came unraveled, was that was the name. That was only the name of just the Italian branch. 
Okay. And it turns out there was there was like an Italian, French, German, Denmark, even neutral countries like Austria and Switzerland uh, had stay behind networks along this thing. So, but you'll find a lot of times people calling using Gladio as an informal name uh, for all sort of Western European stay behind networks. Okay. Um, uh, one of the things I wanted to do earlier is is what is a stay behind network? Okay. Um, a stay behind network or stay behind army is just that. It's a the idea is is that you're anticipating that your enemy is going to overrun a certain portion of territory. Mm-hmm. So rather than retreat, what you do is you leave people there in place in the populace to be able to act as sort of a resistance, resistance. force. Yeah, right? like the French had mm-hmm. when uh, Vichy France took over and all that kind exactly, of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's really I think what gave them the uh, the idea. And it was effective. Mm-hmm. It. Um, and and because you don't have a standing army, you some ways can be more effective because you're working behind the scenes, mm-hmm. almost like special forces, and they don't know where to direct their mm-hmm. activity at. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, uh, it, it's it's a really huge morale builder for both the the populace at large, and it's a d- huge demoralizer when it comes to the occupying army. Uh, even though it's probably not going to, you're mm-hmm. not going to liberate it generally. Although, uh, as we'll get to Greece, that's Greece is mm-hmm. sort of a special case. Um, but the idea of the communist threat, they're going to pour through the Volga Gap and take over Western Europe. Mm-hmm. It's now, you know, uh, and then everybody will be up a creek and there'll be no assets on the ground. The way they combated that was, uh, the way to combat that was to build these stay-behind networks, right? Um, uh, they were built in a lot of different ways. They were structured in a lot of different ways. Um, Belgiums, for instance, had actually two two of them at the same time, a civilian one and a military one, and they would meet together once every six months and have a big convention and hmm. talk about stuff. Um, whereas, uh, whereas in a lot of other places, generally, uh, what would happen is they would build the Gladio network into the Secret Service thing. Now, let me, one thing I need to clarify for our audience, what's unique, this is not like where a, another army has overcome this land and now it's under their domain these are western nation that we consider part of the free world that they're operating in mm-hmm. so in other words they're basically i mean the, the worst thing they're facing at the time being is maybe a communist party operating within a multi-party mm-hmm. system so it's not like they've been overrun technically they mm-hmm. they may fear a future overrun but these guys are operating in the midst of a place that's technically the free world well and and i mean ultimately uh ultimately it wouldn't you know, it sort of makes sense on the, like, we're fearing this invasion from these enemies. Let's build this network so maybe we can get it back later, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. But what immediately ended up happening um, is that uh, there pretty much ended up being a twofold idea in some of these countries, especially the Mediterranean ones. Um, not so much up in, not so much up in, as far as I know, up in the north, like Sweden and Norway yeah. and places, but uh, Italy, Turkey, Spain, Portugal, France. Um, it ended up they almost immediately in some cases there ended up being a twofold um a twofold purpose one was to prepare for the, a communist invasion mm-hmm. the other one was to agitate to push the country right consistently mm-hmm. and that would that would take take the form of uh you know breaking strikes uh using mm-hmm. gladio forces they would show up as you know clandestine people and you know start cracking heads mm-hmm. Uh, well, let me ask you this: If if their main purpose was to stop ter- uh, communism spread, mm-hmm. 
Is that really the only thing that they're trying to accomplish by pushing it far right? Is this just the process of stopping communism, or was there another reason why they were doing that too? Well, did it did it evolve into other purposes why they wanted it for the far right, even if the communism threat wasn't that big at the time? That's an interesting question, and I don't have a good answer for that. But like, I will. For example, fascism, as you know, corporatism is another mm-hmm. word for it, is very lucrative for mm-hmm. people on the inside. Oh, well, well, under capitalism, people there's money to be made. By having that kind of system set up. Well, if if you're asking that, let me give you a great quote from uh, a guy named Richard Brunecki, who I mentioned. Mm-hmm. He says, the CIA money for the P2, which was a Masonic lodge there in Italy, that mm-hmm. was um, uh, for the P2 had several aims. One of them was terrorism. Another aim was to get P2's help to smuggle dope into the USA from other countries. We use them to create situations favorable to the explosion of terrorism in Italy and in other European countries at the beginning of the 1970s. Um, and then the interviewer says, excuse me, but your claims are very serious. <laughs> you say that the P2 was a creation, the financial and organizational arm of the CIA to destabilize, to run covert operations in Europe? Uh, and Bernanke replies, there is no doubt. The P2, since the beginning of the 1970s, was used for the dope traffic for desta- and for destabilization in a covert way. Uh, it was done secretly to keep people from knowing about the involvement of the U.S. government. In many cases, it was done directly through the offices of the CIA in Rome and in some other cases through CIA centers in other countries. Um, and that's from an ex, ex-CIA officer who was in charge of that. He's still got a lot of the documents okay. that list... That list of people. So you get mission creep there. In other words, where they have personal internal agendas that they find, hey, this network works pretty good for us for mm-hmm. our personal agendas in addition for the uh, the long-term original. CIA has the same thing. CIA mm-hmm. has the same mission creep from what it originally was called to do mm-hmm. and other institutions. That's yep. why we had to be wary of big institutions, even in the church. Sure. Uh, you can get mission creep from what you originally you founded this institute, you know, to do. Mm-hmm. You know, do other kind of things when you give that much power to somebody. Yeah. Well, that un- unfortunately that's very much the case uh, in uh, in Italy, in in to a lesser extent in Greece, but very especially in Turkey, uh, you see a lot of people who are involved in some way or another with Operation Gladio, mm-hmm. and um, uh, another uh, operation they they had. The Turkey is no stranger to secret organizations. They had Operation Gladio. They had uh, uh, the Gray Wolves, which were a pan-Turkish organization that were, yeah. uh, you know, operated essentially as a terrorist organization. And uh, uh, Ergonacon, which was a which was like a political arm of all of this stuff. Yeah. And then you had um, various infiltrations from their secret service and their secret warfare department. And it just like uh, in, in Turkey, in a couple of countries. Turkey being one, Spain being mm-hmm. the other. Um, essentially, Gladio like was the government. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they were the people. Uh, the people on the payroll for Gladio were the people in charge, and they used, uh, you know, clandestine means to do all sorts of stuff. And that would be the big news for people who live in any of those countries: is you had a shadow organization, unbeknownst to you, for generations that really called all the shots in your country. Mm-hmm. And not the people you think you're electing. Well, uh, and and that leads us back to really why I wanted to talk about this so much is that in those countries it's not really a secret, you know. Yeah. You talk about uh, you talk about Agentur Press in Portugal or uh, you know the OAS's uh, the OAS's founding in Madrid in 1961, and they you know there's quite a few people who seem to really know about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about uh, you talk about Ergonacon in. Uh, and I'm probably mm-hmm. pronouncing, mispronouncing that in, in Turkey, and people know know about that. You talk about mm-hmm. the strategy of tension in the years of lead, 
everybody knows about mm-hmm. that in Italy. That so this is, is another part case of their history. where Americans also, yet again, tend to be some of the least educated on well, world issues. Uh, it, it could be. I mean, we, you know, not you can't know everything about everything. Yeah. Uh, however. These are uh, Gladio for me is a is just another one of those game changers, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And and how you view the world, you mean? Yeah, uh, it, it's it's one of those things. It's like now we have all of those things that people suspect and can kind of put the dots together. Now we essentially have incontrovertible proof in many cases mm-hmm. from the people who were doing it mm-hmm. um, uh, that it went on pretty much exactly like mm-hmm. you would envision in a in a terrible bad movie, you know. Well, don't let me get ahead of you with my questions, okay? Okay. Uh, I just want to lead our discussion, but if don't let me cut you off when you feel. Can you explain what the first Gladio State Behind structure was and what its functions were? Um, well, the first Gladio State Behind structure came about in Greece, okay. it, it appears. <clears throat> um, uh, as uh, as many of, many of uh, listeners probably know, we've got a very well-informed audience, that Greece was uh, Greece was overrun by the Nazis in World War II, right? The uh, Italians came and tried to take Greece over. They didn't do a very good job. And mm-hmm. the Greek resistance was powerful enough to actually push uh, uh, the Italians out of large parts of, of Greece. In uh, and, and some provinces, basically the only thing that Italy, uh, the Italians controlled was was the main highways and the, some, the main mm-hmm. population centers, the 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 you know the the countryside the smaller towns was not under their control. Uh, they eventually had to pull in to bring in elite uh, elite Nazi shock troops mm-hmm. uh, to sort of quell the population in some places because it got so bad. Um, now the people fighting there were were essentially pro-communists, and that's mm-hmm. one thing you'll find in all of these in, in all of these places: Italy, Greece, um, uh, to a lesser extent in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everybody, everybody who was fighting the Nazis, they were communists. Yeah. Um, uh, now, I've often wondered why that is. You know, it's 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 essentially the same sort of um, structure. That the only difference is is who's at the top. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but the the people fighting the 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 Nazis in Greece were were uh, pro generally pro communist. In some cases, like outright, uh, you know, card carrying members who made no bones about it. Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, LS and the the, the EDA, uh, two two uh, resistance forces. Now originally, Britain was the guy was was the was the big country that was in charge of helping Greece to run things, help helping them out um, to fight the Nazis. And in 1943, they sent people there to help and and to link all of the resistance forces together. Uh, and while there, they kind of figured out like just how communist it was, mm-hmm. and they said, "Man, this is." Assuming we're going to be the country who sort of oversees, if you will, uh, Greece, um, we don't want all these communists here because it's going right. to fall to communism. So they set about to sort of quelling the communist thing. They stopped just sort of declaring open war on the on the resistance fighters who they had formerly been arming and linking up with, mm-hmm. and that ended up ended up uh, uh, running into this thing called the Syntagma Square massacre. Uh, Syntagma Square is a square down in Athens where um, people met up to <clears throat> people met up to protest uh, these very uh, sort of stringent stringent sort of rules that that this provisional British government was trying to import, enforce on the people. Um, 
there was about 60,000 people that came came out to protest there in Athens, uh, protesting various things. It wasn't mm-hmm. just they weren't all. It wasn't wasn't like they were all pro-communist, yeah. you know. But they were protesting various things, and then a larger group or a smaller group of about 600 people made it to Syntagma Square. They were cut off from the larger protest. And so there's about 600 people here in Syntagma Square. And uh, the, the, the secret police were there, the regular police, British Special Forces, and this group called the Hellenic Raiding Force, uh, which mm-hmm. was a group of, uh, a group of people that uh, the British were training to be uh, essentially crack soldiers to root communists out. They were all there, with, in yeah. some cases, with heavy machine guns. And so one thing led to another, and then uh, the British and the, the Greek secret police and everybody opened fire and killed a bunch of people there at the, uh, there at the thing. And that was really kind of the, like the first, that, was the, that, that like set the stage, if you will, mm. to the whole thing. Um, I had mentioned this, this thing called the LOK, or the Hellenic Raiding Force. Mm-hmm. The Hellenic Raiding Force really turned out to be the nucleus of the first, uh, first Gladio-type stay-behind structure. Uh, they got all of these people who were uh, staunchly uh, conservative, right-wing, but not out-and-out out out Nazis, hmm. right? And they took them and they said, hey, we'll train you, we'll do lots of stuff, we'll show you how weapons work and stuff, and basically built this force, uh, the LOK. Uh, uh, there was a smaller group called the X-Bands. They were Cyprian um, people. You know, Cyprus has mm-hmm. always been disputed with between... Uh, between Turkey and, and Greece, there was there was never more than a few hundred of the X bands, uh, 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 military people. But the LOK's big thing was uh, with with British guns and training uh, and, uh, and armaments. They were supposed to go into the hills and sort of root out the communists. And uh, at the end of the war, they essentially they kind of hung up their their stuff, but they kept them on uh, with the idea that they were they might have a use for them in some way. So 1946 rolls around, and one thing leads to another, and the communists pull out of the election there in Greece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a small, uh, a small group of these, and I say small, it was like 10,000 people, a small mm-hmm. group of the communists actually rearm and take to the hills. So the British, uh, the British begin, uh, they call up the LOK again, uh, okay. this, this, this secret army that they've sort of trained and kind of put back in the populace mm-hmm. pretty quietly. Uh, and say, go up there into the hills and start, you know, start getting rid of the communists. Um, owing largely to the exhaustion of uh, World War II, the Brits have to, ta- they ask America in. And so America pretty much continues the same policies. In fact, uh, by 1948 and 1949, uh, they've succeeded in cutting off all the supplies of the communists up there in the hills. And they, uh, they've armed you know they've armed the 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 stay behind network there the LOK um, to the hilt, and what ends up happening? You know we don't normally hear much about the Cold War struggles that are really like hot struggles like this mm-hmm. in that time just a few years after the after the World War Two. Well, I'll tell you what. Usually not into the fifties after the H bomb, you know mm-hmm. that we hear. I, I know, I know. War. This all of this history was was eye opening. Um, this is a this is a rabbit hole. But did you yeah. know that? Um, did you know that during this time, during the Civil War, 46 to 49, that uh, and, and even up into the early 50s, that Greece actually, Greece actually had prison camps, uh, like concentration camps, essentially on on these on Greek uninhabited Greek islands. They they 
you know, row out there on a boat, go out there on a mm-hmm. boat, set up a barbed wire fence and uh, some tents, and that's where they cl- kept political dissidents. All these really? people that the LOK and, and other groups, too, it wasn't just them. That you would, know, the line blurs at a point between concentration camps and just prison camps and stuff like that because the way our world is, it becomes, you know, what do you call a concentration camp? And it's because now we've got Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you call that a you know, it's just it's just surreal how there's a continuum. I mean, like you said, red versus blue. Mm-hmm. It's not like well, concentration camp's bad. We treat people good. It's like well, what do you call that? Yeah, you know. Um, the I mean, the evidence is fragmentary. The people who really write about it are mm-hmm. mostly Greek folks. Yeah. Um, so it, a lot of that information yeah. hasn't made it to the United States. You know, a lot of Americans. We talked about this once on Future Quake about how the British took over running those German mm-hmm. torture prisons out after World War II and tortured not only a whole bunch of guys who were Germans, but even people who worked for us from Poland and other places. Mm-hmm. And they tried to get information out of them that would be helpful about the communists. Mm-hmm. And so they started doing the same torture tactics with the same equipment that the Nazis had and left them in there five or six years immediately after World War II. Well, uh, we'll get to him here eventually, but a guy named Reinhard Galen, yeah. um, uh, he was... He he killed four million people uh, essentially through mass starvation. Uh, I mean, you know, he killed people a lot of different ways. But yeah, he can't be a bad guy. He was a knight of Malta, uh, and he was also he also worked for the United States up until about 1968, mm-hmm. uh, running the German secret police uh, there in West Germany. Um, uh, yeah, so they had these concentration camps out there mm-hmm. on the island. Um, uh, Machinosis, I believe. Is, uh, I can't I can't remember how just to spell it, but it's. M-A-K-O, M-A-K-O-N-S-I-S or something like that. Okay. Um, it, it's a, essentially, they ran a, a concentration camps for their own citizens. Um, so in 1949, kind of the Civil War kind of comes to an end with Operation Torch. Now, Operation Torch, you, you want to... Special forces and stuff are really intelligent in some ways because... I can't help but think that they took the name Operation Torch uh, and deliberately used it so it could be confused with the other more popular Operation Torch, which was the invasion of uh, North Africa in 1942. Mm. But Operation Torch in 1949 uh, was uh, American napalm being strapped onto uh, uh, Greek airplanes and just carpet bombing the place where the... uh, you know, the former, they, they are communists, they were communists, mm-hmm. uh, up there in the hills, but they were also former freedom fighters, you know, that kicked the Nazis out and were work, working mm-hmm. for the for the SAS and other groups. Uh, they basically just carpet-bombed the place and, and napalmed them, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the fighters, their women and children, and, and other people up there. Now, let me ask you this. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of, at least the priority of emphasis at this stage is on uh, Greece and then Italy. Mm-hmm. which are both two southern Mediterranean European countries, mm-hmm. um, which the southern, you know, the northern Europeans look down on the southern Europeans as being sort of like how we look at people when they get close to the equator. The the climate makes the people more laid back. They're not that north and industrialist, mm-hmm. you know, really intense focus. They're the laid back people enjoying yeah. the sun. Mm-hmm. Um Probably a little bit more sympathetic to the average common folk, which would make communism look more attractive mm-hmm. than than the the hard you know hard edged worker people of the north, you know, like mm-hmm. Germany and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
Is is that why there was more of a communist temptation in those countries, and then why Gladio was primarily well, centered there? Well, I think I think it's it, it's interesting that that might have something to do with it, but there's different reasons for each okay. each country. Um, Salazar's Portu- Portugal was 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 deeply yeah. corrupt. Uh, right, but Franco, they, well, see, they would still fit that. Their 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 mindset is more that Southern Mediterranean. They're not known as an industrial powerhouse, by the way. Sure, you know, sure. They're for their sun and their tourism and that kind of thing. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, and they're extremely poor right now. They're getting ready to go bankrupt. Yeah, Francoist Francoist Spain. Um, uh, you know, he needed he. he hopefully, we'll get to him. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like I said, I could, I could. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm only scratching the surface, and we're probably yeah. halfway through the show already. But Franco was Spain. He actually signed. Uh, he signed some some agreements uh, with you know w- with a lot of these uh, su- what I call the super Gladio, the real movers and shakers who knew what they were doing, who were part of Gladio, who made no bones about it behind closed doors. Look, we work for the CIA. We're going to go blow stuff up. Blame it on the left. You know, they were like, they, mm-hmm. they would write stuff out like that. Um, the super Gladio people, uh, like Di Chali and, and um, uh, Guerin Savak and these other, these other people, uh, players who we'll hopefully get to, they made no bones, they made no bones about what they were doing. And Franco thought, hey, this is great. I can use this. I can use these people to get rid of anarchists and uh, especially Basque separatists. Right. So he struck this deal. You can live in my thing. You can use it as a base of operations. You go help, mm-hmm. Go get rid of the Basque. They're mercenaries, basically. At this uh, point. Essentially. Yeah. Uh, it, it, very much so. Um, um, and that's kind of, that was kind of it, you know. Um, let, let me get back to Greece here and, and yeah. hopefully conclude. So Operation, uh, Operation Torch, they, they, they uh, napalm the whole place. Um Finally, because of this, you know, they've essentially destroyed, you know, they've they've taken the communist support of, uh, you know, Greece might have had and just sort of snapped it in yeah. two. Uh, now it's looking much more democratic. You know, you've mm-hmm. got 10,000 people burning up in the hills that would have right. opposed that. So um, in 1952, it ends up joining NATO. NATO and... Um, it gets the security structure there uh, only grows and grows and grows and grows. Uh, the Hellenic raiding force there, the LOK group, is kept on to continue to sort of spy on the populace, mm-hmm. um, to look after look after things. Um, and uh, it's interesting to see just how big the security structure was there in Greece. Um, it got so big that there's like I guess about 16 million or so people there. Um, and uh, in Greece at this time, 16 million people, they had 16 tons of, um, you know, paper on their citizens. Wow. And it was so, so big. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of paper. Yeah. You know, um, uh, they had so much paper on their citizens that they got they got the first like real sort of big old mainframe computer to kind of use for security stuff from the United States. They gave it to him, and the United States said, here, you know, you can use it. And at the press conference, uh, I mentioned this in my talk, uh, at the press conference, they're talking about how awesome this thing is. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're keeping you all safe at night with this, with this technology. Uh, why, with just a few buttons, I can give you the, give you the dossier of a, of a known terrorist suspect. Mm-hmm. And he hits a few buttons, and it spits out a dossier. And it's the dossier of one of the journalists there in attendance covering the computer, yeah. the computer thing. Oops. Yeah. Um, so that's when you hear that. Wah, 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 wah. 
<laughs> I couldn't help but think about that, you know. Yeah. Um, one of the points that, that one of the authors makes in this, um, uh, he says, it's, it's interesting to see that the, the world's first republic, i.e. Greece and Athens, uh, was getting a computer mm-hmm. from the, the world's newest republic, that mm-hmm. is the United States, to keep track, covertly keep mm-hmm. track of their citizens. You know? Now, was this IBM probably? You know, I don't know, but... I mean, IBM be. was the big cheese then. Yeah. Because IBM also made the system that, that the Germans used to keep track of the Jews in the Holocaust camps. It would make sense that there was something built yeah. on that line. Something I, I, we can be proud of, our contribution to yeah. world history. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Um, so, uh, yeah, at this time, you know, they were rounding people up and torturing them and, and, and doing all mm-hmm. this stuff. And that, uh, the Hellenic Raiding Force was really pretty instrumental in all this. It wasn't just... It wasn't just a secret police. Yeah. It wasn't just. It was the the Hellenic raiding force, um, and things got so bad there uh, with this idea of uh, this sort of stay behind network running things and the CIA running things that um, in the mid '60s a guy named Andreas Papandreou he was the son of the prime minister at the time mm-hmm. uh, he figured out he he found out that uh, members of operation uh, of the Gladio stay behind structure there in Greece. Were were uh, actually bugging the ministries, uh, like cabinet level ministry mm-hmm. conversations, reporting on it and giving it to the CIA uh, as 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 part of mm. their duties. So he got mad and he said, "Well, I'm going to put a stop to the CIA and the Greek Secret Service being one and the same." So he fired two guys, sent out two trustworthy people. They came back and said, "Well, we can't do it." Yeah. And he said, "What do you mean we can't do it?" He says, "Well." It's impossible for us to see where one ends and the other begins. Uh, that was their answer. Mm-hmm. So he tried various other things, and it ended up setting off a coup in 1967, mm-hmm. um, which is rather, you know, people know yeah. a lot more about that. Um, that that coup, uh, according to some researchers, was done lock, stock, and barrel uh, with uh, uh, the Operation Gladio forces in Greece. The people who were the boots on the ground were Operation Gladio people. Hmm. Uh, they in 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 under in under 20 minutes they rounded up 10,000 people. Wow! Uh, by one by by one researcher's estimate. Yeah. Uh, you know, I stop and think about that. I mean, that's that is a huge covert army. It, it it was so big that in the 50s. Now, what 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 kind of clothing would they wear? I mean, how did they identify themselves? Well, I, I mean, as military on, people. On the night of the raid, I don't know, but you know, they were yeah. essentially people that were. Um, you've made reference to like Delta Force people who just wear civilian clothing and yeah. you know. Uh, uh, but I but think, you know, like rounding up large groups of people like that, do they have like yeah. some kind of? Well, they were. This goes back paramilitary to paramilitary gear. Or? Well, well, they do. They did. There was about 800 caches of of arms buried throughout mm-hmm. throughout Greece. You know, from you know pistols and light machine guns yeah. to heavy machine guns and C4 and all these things, but. One of the things I talked about was how they were built and structured a little while, mm-hmm. uh, a little while ago. The idea was is that the Gladio structure was built within the secret service and the secret secret security structure there, uh, uh, various various systems. You know, you might have, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a hundred guys in your department and you are part of the secret police, twenty five of them might be Operation Gladio guys, as well as the mm-hmm. guy who's in charge. And he always gives he's because he's in charge he's able to give the, those guys who he kind of mm-hmm. knows about to give them the choice things they need, uh, yeah, to go off and do what they need to do. Huh. 
So, like, for example, like we could have that situation set up right now with the ISI, the secret police of Pakistan. Yes. We could have a large part of our people that, or, or even Mossad could. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, uh, I hate to get derailed, but, uh, you know, just to add to that, you know, there was recently a shooting where some guy who was in Pakistan, an American, was on Pakistan on business, and then he jumped on a motorcycle, drove down to the square, and shot two guys in, in the chest. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And it turns out he got he got nabbed by the local yeah. the local Pakistani police, and 24 hours later he was released, and uh, free to go about his business. And uh, everybody wonders what exactly went on. It turns out that he was working at one point for a company called ITT. Oh, okay. Which was a uh, you know mm-hmm. once we get to Turkey we'll look at. Okay. Um, so uh, it, it, finally about this whole Greek structure about the Greek gladio, uh, they used like I said they used the gladio structure to do it. Uh, and interestingly, the guy who ended up becoming the new the new head honcho there in in Greece was a guy named George Papadopoulos, uh, and he was uh, the liaison officer between the CIA and the Greek Secret Service, um, the Greek Security Service mm-hmm. there. So, the you know that's a that's an important position, but gosh, to go from a liaison officer to the essentially the prime minister of the country, mm-hmm. that's um, I'll tell you something. And he was well connected, evidently. Uh, evidently, so that's that kind of gives us an overview of sort of the building of the first Gladio structure mm-hmm. up into its later history. Yeah. Uh, by about 1949 or so, we covered up into about 1970 mm-hmm. in that uh, the Greek history of that. But up into about 1949 or 50, um, they were still building Gladio things in other countries. But by about 1950, most countries in Western mm-hmm. Europe had a gladio structure. You, you know, it's funny about Greece. Greece has always had a reputation for being a dangerous city. Mm-hmm. And that Greek, the Athens airport was one that was considered the loosest as far huh. as stuff being able to get through the airport without getting caught. So mm-hmm. I wonder if a little about that is a legacy of the infrastructure support coming. It's hard to say. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. One of the things, uh, this is... There was a guy, uh, we'll have to do a show on him sometime. I've read a couple books on him, uh, who was named uh, um, Del Chai. I can't even say his right name right. I've read his name mm-hmm. like 5,000 times, Del Chai. Chai. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, went from, he went from blowing stuff up in Italy to, to, being, uh, to going and helping people in Greece uh, during the military junta of 67 to 74. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went to... Yeah, he was based in Spain. He got run out of Spain. He went to Portugal. Uh, he flew to. Uh, uh, he worked for Somoza in 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 Central America. Uh, he was instrumental in helping set up Operation Gladio. He went to uh, he went to uh, with Klaus Barbie and helped set up concentration camps in Bolivia in '68 mm-hmm. and '69. How did this guy go all over the place like this? You know, he, he went everywhere. He went to South America. He went to Central America. Uh, he went to, you know, all over the Mediterranean doing stuff. Um, you know, nobody caught on. You know, they knew. They people knew who he was. They knew. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and these people, they get they skate through security. They know any problem mm-hmm. getting caught. You know. Yeah. One of the things. One of the things uh, we'll get to is a great example of that is in Turkey. Um, the uh, a guy named Ali Agsa. He was the mm-hmm. guy who shot the Pope, right? And John Paul II. Uh, he was an Operation Gladio member, and uh, really, yeah. 
uh, he was an Operation Gladio member, and he doesn't look like the demographic. I'm, I'm picturing more European-looking kind of people. They'll they they take they take all sorts of folks. Well, this this guy was always portrayed as some kind of like Muslim ethnic extremist kind of guy, from what you know I see in the mainstream news. Well, that gets back to that gets back to how NATO wanted to really set up. Uh, the Turkish branch of Gladio. They said back in 1949, there's actually a tab in the back of a like a policy thing for NATO that says one of the ways that we can best control Turkey is to access their strong racial nationality, uh, and hmm. racial and national identity of being Turks. Hmm. Uh, it's called pan-Turkism. And to that end, a lot of the people that got recruited into um, into the Turkish stay behind were essentially were you know real national nationalistic folks like that mm-hmm. huh. and uh so yeah he was a but he was a guy like that uh the reason he came up was because uh he was wanted for murder before that before shooting the pope mm-hmm. back in the mid 70s and uh because he you know he just went out and he decided i'm going to kill all these folks uh so he went and killed a bunch of people and the thing got it eventually who came, are the kind of people that would be his targets uh, I think that particular one, I could have this wrong, but were, were college students. Um, he decided, what? well, they were protesting, um, some political thing. And, okay. Um, he would, you know, in the, in an effort to try and keep Turkey as right as you, as you can, mm-hmm. you know, he went in and killed seven or eight or nine. Mm. Um, and I guess I could have this wrong. I get, mm-hmm. uh, there were so many massacres during that time. It's hard to mm-hmm. keep them all straight. I have never heard him portrayed in the regular mainstream press as a right, right wingish kind of guy. Well, you know, or that yeah. kind of part of his history. Sure. Well, he was trained by the CIA in, in I hmm. think, uh, I think Istanbul. Hmm. Um, uh, but that, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we could go on and yeah. on. But, uh, but the thing, the, the final point I wanted to make with him, the re- whole reason he came up is that he was wanted for murder. He got he got busted and they took him to jail. Uh, Gladio, Gladio and another sister organization, Gray, the Gray Wolves, they took him out of. They took him out of prison, and they smuggled him through eight different security checkpoints and walked him out the front door. That's how much pull they had. Mm. Wow. And another uh, – okay, one more thing. In another, in another Turkish thing like that, they some guy, uh, some guy was uh, – uh, you know, they proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was conducting terrorist acts mm-hmm. there in Turkey. And a federal, uh, a federal judge found him guilty – but uh, a higher military tribunal overruled him and declared him innocent. And the judge's final word on it says, I declare him guilty. I know these other people know that he's guilty, but I can't overrule this court because of the ways of the land, so I guess I have to dismiss the case. Boy, that's strange. Uh, Ridiculous in the extreme. I don't know how, you know, I don't know the Mm. intricacies of Turkish judicial, Mm -hmm. judicial filings, but especially during that time, but... Um, that was uh, that's that's been mentioned and that was mentioned in at least one place that that's kind of how it went on, wow. you know. And and the reason they were able to do that was because of this Gladio, mm-hmm. uh, this Gladio background. Um, let me make I'll make one final point. Maybe we'll move on to another country. Okay. Uh, it's important to remember in all of this Gladio stuff that uh, according to uh, uh, Oscar Le Winters, who was uh, a liaison officer, essentially mm-hmm. between the CIA and other different groups such as this, mm-hmm. uh, he said that uh, there was a secret amendment in the NATO uh, pact, the NATO that each country mm-hmm. would sign, that says that you had to be soft on right-wing extremists. Uh, uh, 
<clears throat> and they said that you you couldn't even get in the door if you didn't agree to sign that that piece of paper as a NATO member. Uh, and the reason being was the country had to the to country be joined had to, into the NATO yeah, circle. Yeah, it, it it had to be had to. I'd be love hard to on see a, like a document like that come forward. I'm not doubting it. I'm sure, just saying I'd like to see sure. what that really would look like. Yeah, uh, Oscar Le Winters is one of those guys. Um, it's funny, like uh, the CIA spent a lot of money trying to sort of make him look bad, and then it came out that his name was on the roll of a of a uh, um, the CIA record, re- recruited a lot of students in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out Oscar Le Winters was one of the uh, somebody named Oscar Le Winters going to the same school that he said he went to at the same time uh, was uh, recruited by the CIA. It turns out, even though they said we've never heard of him, it's like well. Hmm. He said he went here and was recruited by you guys, and lo and behold, it shows up here. Uh, further, it shows up, his name shows up in, in at least one Italian document um, back from the 70s. So, um, he, he's an interesting guy. He has quite a few uh, intense things to say about all this. So, uh, Belgium, that's another one. <clears throat> Belgium, Claudio. yep. Uh, Bel- the Belgium Gladio, uh, it, it had kind of a unique setup. One of the things that I, I mentioned earlier is that oftentimes they would take this secret stay-behind army and fold it into the secret services and kind of stuff it in there mm-hmm. or uh, uh, take it and fold it into just the civilian populace in general and kind of stuff it in there. Yeah. It was it tended to be one or the other. With, with Belgium, they had a unique setup. There were actually two parallel structures. Uh, one was one called SDRA-8, and the other one was STCMOB. And now the first one uh, was built into the Secret Service structure, right? Uh, SDRA-8 was uh, members of, like, the Secret Police mm-hmm. and, you know, their, like, CIA kind of people mm-hmm. that uh, they actually functioned in there, you know, they, in, in the midst of their security structure. Mm-hmm. It was actually this core of people who were doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, the second one uh, was a civilian structure that interacted uh, in a somewhat loose uh, aggregation with the first mm-hmm. one. Um, now, this was largely the result. Uh, uh, the reason for this two two tiered thing was uh, uh, during and right after World War II, the units that collected intelligence for the Allied powers ended up becoming one thing, right? And they ended up becoming the civilian thing, hmm. uh, the STC mob. I, I'm, you know, I'm throwing lots of acronyms yeah. at you. I'm sorry. That's um, and that the units that had that were actually parachuted into Belgium and that it operated clandestinely behind enemy lines during World War II uh, ended up becoming uh, the SDRA-8, the one that the one that was actually in the government. So, like most places in World War in Europe after World War II, communism communism was again strong uh, because uh, because Quite rightly, they were viewed as the people who were willing to fight the Nazis. Right. You know, um, the communists would go out and, you know, there's a lot of communist blood on the streets of, of these various nations fighting right. Nazis. Right. Um, uh, now, the first... It's they probably, even when these countries were overtaken, they probably had some of the most organized resistance. That's true. Um, I'm certainly not... I certainly don't want to sound like I'm carrying the water for communists, but um, it's yeah, just... You have to go to communist quake. For that, <laughs> I mean, that's uh, a hor- good point, comrade. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I mean, obviously a horrible system, but yeah. facts are facts. They were the people that were willing to fight the Nazis. Right, you know? right. And they were the ones that the, the Nazis feared the most. That's true. That's true. Uh, so interestingly, in 1950, the first probable terrorist event uh, that that uh, the Belgium stayed behind mm-hmm. uh, was involved in was this thing called the assassination of Julian Lahaut. Lahaut. Um, Julian Lahaut was uh, one of the most famous communists there in, in Belgium at the time. <clears throat> they had a large, uh, Belgium had a large people who leaned communist. Um, and for various reasons, they decided to bring the Belgian king back. And uh, while he was being reinstated, Julian Lahat was invited. Lahat was invited to this thing, and he he screams out, uh, "Viva la Republic!" Um, you know, "Long mm-hmm. live the Republic!" And it made some people in it made some people so mad that uh, about a month and a half later, two people stopped in in his front house uh, front yard and shot him while he was while he was gardening. Uh, mm. So one thing led to another, and then it came out in I don't know the late '80s. That um, um, I uh, gosh I can't remember the guy's name, but a Gladio uh, a member of one of the earlier Gladio uh, uh, stay behind networks took it upon himself to dig up the um, dig up one of these clandestine arm dumps arms dumps that they were starting mm-hmm. to put out there, you know get himself a weapon and shoot the guy. Hmm. Um, so that's that was kind of in a nutshell the the you know the first real big terrorist mm-hmm. event and it had its. Uh, not only did they eliminate Julian Lahout, which you know there was a lot of personal mm-hmm. animosity, I'm sure, but it also it also uh, had the predicted sort of uh, I- ideal with a lot of these false flag terrorist events. It sent the country into sort of a state of panic. Mm-hmm. You know, here's this random shooting of this um, probably at that time the most famous Belgian communist. So they went and and you know it kind of whips people up into a frenzy. Um, so uh, it's interesting to see that this thing was so well sort of kind of covered up. We don't know a lot about it between mm-hmm. about 1960 and 1980. Um, uh, there are a few things though. One of the things that came to light was this guy named Georges 923. Was, he re- actually was a, was a, a, sta- a, a, an Operation Gladio person there in Belgium who wrote a book about all of this stuff. And one of the things he did is, uh, he said that they would practice running people through um, without uh, free of customs and free of uh, police intervention. What they would do is they would drop uh, various members up all the way up in Norway via submarine. You know, the mm-hmm. submarine would surface and they'd... They, they had would, access to a submarine. Um, Claudia. Yeah, well, they don't specify whose submarine it is. Yeah. My guess is it was probably... Um, he doesn't specify yeah. whose submarine it is. My guess is probably, you know, like... Britons or whatever, yeah. but they would they would drop a, a an Operation Gladio member off somewhere off the coast of Britain or uh, I'm sorry Norway. Norway. Take the guy to shore. He would meet with the local stay behind people there, uh, and then one by one they would take this guy through different uh, through different um, uh, the local Gladio thing and meet you know like on the border mm-hmm. here of where there's no listening devices or no listening posts or everything. Mm-hmm. And, they would give this guy to another person, and then they would take him down into, you know, Germany, and then this the Germans would take him over to Belgium, and the Belgians would take him over to, uh, uh, this, you know, this place or that place or whatever. And according uh, according to some of the people, uh, it took about it took about two weeks to a month to do this, which is mm. really considering 
considering how clandestine you had to be, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were essentially avoiding all national borders, the police, customs, uh, any sort mm-hmm. of any sort of thing like that. The guy didn't even have papers in mm-hmm. some cases. Um, hey, let me ask you something of a practical matter. Mm-hmm. These people who are, I don't do, – do you have any estimate of how many people have been involved in Operation Gladio? It's hard to say because there's only – uh, it's been systematically buried. Yeah. Uh, there was only th- there's only been three inquiries into it. One was in Italy. One was in Turkey because mm-hmm. the, the Turkish one was so was so crazy. Yeah. People like they don't. It's just insane. Uh, and then a little bit of rumbling in Belgium. So so from that, any kind of indication they've given out just sheer numbers. Um, people some countries involved? it was very small. Like the Netherlands had maybe uh, at most a hundred. Norway mm-hmm. had fifty. Some countries it was it was bigger, you know, like like Italy was five hundred to a thousand, mm-hmm. but in a lot of in 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 Turkey, it was maybe ten thousand. Really? Yeah. Well, now, how do these people get paid? Uh, the CIA would give them a monthly stipend. There was just a way that money would get get yeah, you know, through I mean, to them. Yeah, you know. And uh, these people had families and everything else there, uh-huh, and just yeah. had their yeah, regular the family. Had I mean, it was a permanent kind of position, and definitely you're gonna. Run these shadow operations indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, you know, in some in some in some cases, you know, it was it, not everybody in Gladio participated in all in all of the shadow operations. Mm-hmm. Some of them they just received the training to be a resistance fighter in the event of a Soviet occupation, kept on with their normal career, their normal government career, mm-hmm. and then uh, they would receive, you know, I don't know, a thousand dollars each month. Uh, in an envelope or mm-hmm. deposited into their account or however it worked. Hmm. I guess another excuse why they had to be that secret is if the communists did invade, they wouldn't want any kind of paper trail for them to smoke out who those people were and go after them first. Sure. Because they'd have to be just totally blended in the population and then do their mm-hmm. demolitions or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, they were doing this on people who were just regular free world leftists they were going after. Yeah, yeah. Um there were it's 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 sad to it's sad to see it but that's really kind of what mm-hmm. ended up happening as things went on you know they kind of got more flagrant and free with blowing stuff up and blowing people up mm-hmm. and then uh it it kind of got kind of got nuts what um, what what about germany uh, there was quite a bit of there was a a, a really interesting uh one there in in, in germany uh, 1945, 46, the Nazis have have lost, and there's all of these SS mm-hmm. officers in these uh, in these camps, and they're not sure what to do with them. So the CIC, which was the Counterintelligence Corp, was one of the forerunners of the CIA. They decide that they're going to uh, start keeping tabs on a lot of these people. Well, come to find out, there's already uh, a Already, people have been put in place there. Nobody's really sure why. This this guy, Agent uh, Agent Eberhard uh, uh, Dobringhaus, who worked for this worked for the hmm. the United States, was keeping an eye on a guy named uh, Klaus Barbie, and Klaus Barbie was the butcher of Lyon, mm-hmm. right? And uh, he's he would meet with them every couple of weeks, and you know they give him a little bit of money, and he would ask him, you know, tell me whatever it is you need, we need to know about mm-hmm. what's going on, just to make sure nothing gets too crazy. And um, he eventually figures out who Klaus Barbie is, and he says, "Well, uh, so Klaus Barbie, he's the butcher of Lyon. He's killed 
14, 15,000 people. He's wanted, he's wanted against, he's wanted for crimes against humanity. Uh, he's been tried and convicted in absentia in, in France for this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he tells his superiors, and, uh, according to De Bringhaus' own, own words, I thought I was gonna get a medal, and they told me to sit on it. They said, he's valuable to us. Uh, when the time, when he's no longer valuable, we'll hand him over. And, lo and behold, almost immediately, it comes to light that they set up a, a secret stay behind army there in in Germany using uh pretty much lock stock and barrel SS agents. Hmm. Okay. Now, uh the whole thing ended up getting uh getting blown wide open when this guy named Klaus Otto, who was known as uh who, who was part of this whole network, uh he just he has an attack attack of the good consciences, you know, hmm. former SS officer, go figure. Hmm. Um, but he just, he's like, look at everything we've already done, mm-hmm. all the all the evil and madness and stuff that we've already um, foisted on the world. It's uh, you know we don't need to do this again. So mm-hmm. he goes and he tells uh, he goes and tells the police about all this, and it filters up the chain of command until it gets to a guy named August Zinn. Uh, and August Zinn, uh, he's told he's threatened, and they tell mm-hmm. him they we're going to kill you if you mm-hmm. reveal any of this. He gets up in front of uh, Parliament there in the state of Hesse. This isn't even federal, mm-hmm. you know. This isn't even the national mm-hmm. parliament. Uh, this is just a like a somewhere up, like a step above, like a state legislature. Yeah. Um, and he says uh, he tells the whole story. He tells them about um, uh, all of these stay behind networks. He tells them about a blacklist, uh, an assassination list that's supposed to go into effect should it looks like mm-hmm. the Soviets are going to invade. Um, he tells them of the American. Uh, the American base they have, the exact location of it, the firing underground firing range has been built, uh, who's all involved with it, hmm. um, as well as a company called, um, I think it's BND was their initials. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were supposed to, they were like, they like sold paper or something. And it turns out uh, that really it was just a front organization for this. Uh, now, the BND, nobody's really sure how many people were in the, the stay behind, the Gladio stay behind or whatever, but in the in the BND there was about 2,000 employees, hmm. so they don't know what percentage, uh, what percentage of those were stay behind, what percentage of those were were not. But I mean they they had a building that obviously couldn't occupy 2,000 people. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So um, uh, nobody's really sure of the size or the scope, and uh, surprisingly the whole thing was never investigated. Um, uh, I had mentioned Klaus Barbie and, and Reinhard Galen, uh, mm-hmm. both of those two people. Galen was part of the Stay Behind network. Uh, he was a uh, he was uh, SS. He was head of the SS uh, SS uh, Army uh, Eastern Front, which means he was in charge of all mm-hmm. the human intelligence gathering during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, he killed about four million people through essentially through mass starvation. He would put them in a camp uh. and say, "Look, you have something that I need to know, uh, so I'm just not going to feed you until you people start talking." And, you know, lots of people died and mm-hmm. uh, all these other terrible things. Um, now, Walter Bettel Smith, who was the first... And Galen also was a Knight of Malta. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Walter Bettel Smith, who was the first uh, person, I, I believe he was the first person who ran the CIA. Oh, by the way, he was made a Knight of Malta by the Catholic Church, Galen, and they helped operate the rat lines to get him out <laughs> from, you know... Yeah. Like Nuremberg stuff. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, it's interesting because uh, one of the one of the things t- 
talked about uh, for Klaus Barbie was that when this whole thing exploded, Klaus Barbie is like, look, he's already wanted for crimes against humanity. You know, so they smuggled him out through one of these existing rat lines in the early 50s. And uh, one of the instrumental people in it was a Catholic priest. And Klaus finally asked him, he said, why are you doing this? And uh, the Catholic priest said, well, you know, we like to pay it forward sometimes. And, uh, you know, we might have need of your services in the future, essentially. Hmm. Which is, uh, who knows what that means, but right. it's interesting. Um, so, uh, anyway, the whole thing was discovered, but it was never investigated. The whole thing essentially was, uh, the investigation was essentially stopped by uh, by the West. They said, mm-hmm. stop, you're not going to do it. Uh, however, we do know that uh, at some point, at some later point, they set up... Uh, they set up or reactivated more stay-behind networks because there was a bombing uh, called the Munich the, the Munich bombing, Munich massacre, in I think 1980, uh, and they were able to trace they were able to trace the bomb-making stuff to this 21-year-old kid who was a like a neo-Nazi, hmm. and they traced that back to another guy named uh, 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 Lemke who was a uh, forest ranger, right? Well, they started investigating Lemke, and it turns out that somehow Lemke has uh, hundreds and hundreds of firearms in his basement and, uh, you know, has, like, military-grade C4 with American stamps on it and stuff. And uh, the more they investigate this guy, the more it finds out that, uh, like, he's a prominent Uh neo-Nazi. And the the more they investigate him, the more they find out that he's essentially working for somebody, some intelligence agency who's given him access to all of this stuff. Um, Now, it turns out, once again... Uh, long story short, Lemke, um, uh, I believe his first name was Reinhard, Reinhard Lemke. I could have that wrong. Anyway, Lemke was a uh, was a Gladio guy, was a Gladio person. Mm-hmm. They took this dude and they they figured we can use that, we can use this this neo-Nazi angst uh, and 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 channel it, you yeah. know, against communism. So they set him up in. Uh, they set him up in this cush job of being a essentially park ranger. He's like drive around out in the country, yeah. um, and he was in charge. He had access to at one point. He said thirty three different arms dumps, uh, of consisting of you know, uh, in total like three or four hundred different t- kinds of machine guns, hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of rounds of ammo and explosives and stuff, and all mm-hmm. of the stuff used to uh, used to blow up. Uh, to, to blow up, they they put a bomb in a fire extinguisher for the Munich massacre, and it was like essentially like a gigantic grenade. Uh, it killed nine people, and in, in, including a bunch of uh, a couple of kids. And the person, um, anyway, it all it all it all goes back to this guy Lemke, who had access to all this stuff. One thing lead, leads to another. Uh, they they find all of these guns, all of these illegal arms. Uh, he gets off scot free. Um, uh, and to this day. One of the people, uh, one of the people who lost family members in the Munich massacre, says, uh, and he won't go any into any more detail into mm-hmm. it. He just says, uh, "I'll, I'll never know exactly who was behind it, uh, because because uh, the West does not want me to know." Essentially. Wow. Um, Anything else to say about German? Um, no, we've got. Want to go to France? <sighs> France. <laughs> um. France is a is another one where it just it got sort of ridiculous. Um, 
again, the big the big thing, the big commonality on all of these was that the communists were really big in France in the in mm-hmm. the forties and fifties. Um, uh, they started. They didn't know what to do. They, being the Western Western intelligence, didn't mm-hmm. quite know what to do. Uh, so they started building these different stay-behind uh, ideas, but they never really put anything in place. And they finally hit upon this thing called Plan Blue. Okay. Um, and Plan Blue uh, was sort of a three-point plan. Step one was to build stay-behind networks, stay-behind army. Step two was once they were really in place, was to sort of set them up and begin to agitate uh, to destabilize the government. Right. Mm-hmm. So get get people to love a strong authoritarian government who would at the same time be squashing the communists. Yeah. And then point three would be at some point have a coup d'etat and put their own guy in. Hmm. Put a put a anti a, a staunchly anti-communist guy in. Um, so uh, this is all going on fairly well. You know, uh, different different groups inside the French Secret Service are cooperating. Um uh, they went to the Peugeot uh, brothers, you know, uh, hmm. and, and they started asking them for money. They went to a lot of the wealthy industrialists and said, would you give us money? The Peugeot brothers are notable because they gave, uh, they gave them hotels, uh, they gave them garages, and they gave them cars to use. Hmm. Um, uh, uh, and in, in return for that, they said, help us break this, break this nationalistic strike. Uh, there, would, there was a big strike going on, and... Uh, the Peugeot brothers said, "We need, we need, we need people to thump heads." Essentially. Wow! So they've been co-opted. We mentioned several other things, like Franco. Now you've got a business that has their own business needs to use these people. Yeah, yeah. So um, the line blurs, and this is probably not just in Europe. This probably happens in our country and everything, where where the the great merchants of the earth co-opt the tools of the kings of the earth, well, their goons, to do stuff. I, I tell you, man, it's so frustrating because so much of this stuff is is buried, and, you know, you have to dig through archives and records and stuff. Um, it gets, you get exhausted trying to dig uh, through Even I, with the Internet, I don't know how people did it before now. Yeah. You know, guys like Dennis Cuddy and people like that who don't use the Internet mm-hmm. went through the library and pouring through stuff. It, it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I can't even, I'm, you know, I'm sort of in awe of those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? me too. Um, but, so, so there's this thing going on, and they're getting money from different mm-hmm. different wealthy industrialists. Um Eventually, the idea, this whole plan gets leaked, and one thing leads to another, and it ends up getting getting uh, disclosed by, I think it was the interior minister at the time, um, who gets right out and just says, look, there's this thing going on right now by Western intelligence to overthrow uh, the whole thing. And he kind of gives an outline of the whole thing. He says, mm-hmm. look, it's going to happen in July or August. And mm-hmm. so uh, the people involved see that they sort of lost the element of surprise and they sort of let it they they say mm-hmm. well okay well we can't agitate and do what we need to do now so we're going to hmm. we're going to quit we can't you know we can't over we can't mm-hmm. do the coup d'etat uh now interestingly there were a lot of people who ended up uh being involved with that who ended up being high level ministers and stuff in in later french governments in the 70s and 80s and they did an investigation and 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 talked about them and Sort of the the investigation said, oh well, they might have been setting up a, a stay behind army, and they might have been trying to destabilize, but they really weren't going to throw a coup d'état. Um, but talk about talk about a limited hangout, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, so France, uh, France has got all of this stuff going on. By the way, you know, you're talking about amazed and all these people go through these records. I'm amazed at how you can remember all these names and people. This is very intimidating that you can remember all these facts and places. Well, man, I, I really you must feel have one like of them photogenic memories. Uh, probably not. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, I, this stuff, it's, it's, I just feel like it's so, it, it's so important. Not everybody's going to listen. Yeah. Um, you know. Um, the key thing is that this kind of stuff is still going on. This is just the part we can get and document, right? Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Um, now, um, we we are about an hour and twenty minutes into our show. I know Italy is very important. And the years of lead, but I just want to remind you about that. I know we want to talk about strategy attention. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and now, the piano solos will too. So, I know we've got Turkey and we get and to this all. The Aginter, well, you decide if we want to continue it on another day. We might, and we pick, might have to do that. Pick some of that. Well, if that's the case, we can just keep going with what, with what we've got. If you have some more on France you want to talk about or get into the, is it the Aginter Press? Aginter Press. Aginter uh, Press. There's the, the short, the short version is, is that, but for France, is like there's a whole ton more. Um, okay. But an interesting. How, how has it impacted the common history of France as we know it? Uh, well, as we know it, zero because we don't know anything about it. I mean, French but, people are like. But they, they what know all people that we do know there has it impacted okay, who well, has taken over as okay, being well, the person of France? I'll, I'll give you one for instance: uh, uh, the Eleventh E Shock Parachutist Regiment, which was. Like, that was the French Green Berets. They were built essentially like the SAS. Mm-hmm. Uh, they decided that they didn't like, and this will be a great intro to Agenter Press. Uh, they decided that they wanted to keep Alger, uh, Algiers French. You know, mm-hmm. that was, they even formed a, a group called the OAS, uh, whose motto was something to that effect, like, mm. uh, Algeria shall stay French. Okay. Uh, and so they were the, you know, they were like the special forces of France at that time, the 11th E and the 12th E, two different regiments of, of parachutists. Yeah. Um, and they decided that they were going to overthrow the French government. Okay. And so they went and they did all sorts of stuff. They they immediately started bombing stuff in Al- French Algeria um, in the in the early 60s. Uh, well, even before that, really, in the late 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, you asked about how it impacted our common thinking of, of French history. Mm-hmm. They tried to shoot Charles de Gaulle. They, okay. Yeah, they tried to assassinate him. And Charles de Gaulle was one tough cookie because, mm-hmm. like, uh, from some reports, you know, he basically didn't care anything for his safety and grabbed a pistol and started going after right. the assassins and ended up repelling mm-hmm. it. You know, essentially, you know, 80-year-old man. He was driving one of those weird-looking Citrons, like the slot car I've shown you downstairs <laughs> I have. That The weird shape is a famous-shaped car. Uh-huh. And that car he was driving that they amazed saved his life. And it also took incredible shots and damage. It kept wow. driving. And so it became sort of a legend in the world over the assass- attempted assassination of de Gaulle. Wow. Well, um, now, that's the real hard data there on, on the Claudio. Yeah. 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 Um, so the OAS, the uh, the, o, the OAS, Charles got understandably he got pretty mad. Mm-hmm. He said, "Okay, well it's not this is this isn't just rough and tumble politics anymore. This is personal because yeah. not only did, did they try to assassinate him, he was with his wife and family at the time, mm-hmm. and um, so he got he got real mad about that. Disbanded them and threw all of them out of France, mm-hmm. and so they went 
to uh, they were essentially thrown out of the country, and many of them wound up becoming part of this thing that you mentioned, and you asked me a question about called Agenter Press. Okay. Now, Agenter Press, what was it? Uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a news agency. It wasn't a uh, book publisher. Book publisher. Um, it wasn't a press or anything like that. What about like a weightlifting? Was it a special move they do yeah, in yeah, the Olympics? Like <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. really funny, Mike. <laughs> or you know, uh, wrestling. You know, yeah. he's got him pinned into an Agenter press. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Switches to the figure four, and uh-huh. it's an Agenter press. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it was in fact. Nothing but a terrorist organization that actively trained right-wing terrorists and specialized in clandestine warfare, drug running, yeah. randomly attacking civilians, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I wouldn't have picked that up for that name. Uh, that's the whole interesting thing about yeah. it. Some of the agents are... Pre- agents you know, there, that makes me think there could be just companies like Pillsbury that may just actually be a terrorist front organization. Well, uh, what did they say? One of the... Uh, in our O-Cedar, you know, that makes those little brooms mm-hmm. or something. You just don't know. <laughs> You just, you don't, you don't. Um, some of Agenter Press's clients included the people who were involved in some of uh, the most severe right-wing extremist activities in Italy. Um, it, now, it bears noting that an Italian federal inquiry uh, uh, stated that Agenter Press received money from the CIA to run, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I mean, that's like Italian federal court documents. There's no... I'm just thinking about what you said a minute ago. You actually are saying that our government, the CIA, would be funding right-wing terrorists? Yes. That we would fund terrorists? I thought the terrorists were the bad guys that were the people we were always fighting. Well, By the fact that they did things against us, that's the definition of what terrorism is, is that they would do things against us. Mm-hmm. Well, um... I thought our people were freedom fighters when they did use the same techniques. Well, that's what they would have you. That's what they would have you believe. Okay. Um, Agenter Press was interesting because not only did they do, you know, counterinsurgency warfare, if you could call mm-hmm. it that. Really, it's just terrorism in most cases. Um, counterinsurgency warfare against random members of the populace, but they were actually the people who, in a lot of ways, trained people for the strategy of tension. And what went on with the strategy of tension uh, was. Uh, it was just sort of what we've been alluding to, do these random acts of terrorism against the populace to get them to really love the government and keep them away from embracing the embracing communism. Uh, and the people who were involved in training the... Okay, I'll make sure I understand that. Random acts of terror would make people afraid, so then they would look to their government as a source of comfort and security and protection from it. Exactly. Exactly. Rather than just somebody they've been yelling at because of the price of eggs and things, uh-huh. suddenly they they go down the prior the hierarchy of needs to self preservation, mm-hmm. and they look at the government as their real hope. So yeah, that's exactly it. You know, I can't relate to that in our culture. I don't think we've ever been in this <laughs> circumstance. I'll take your word for it. Uh, well, you know, what, what are you going to do? Uh, they Agenter Press would really was more made up of the people who trained people, although they certainly did their fair share of mm-hmm. it. There were a couple of guys who were who bears noting, uh, Yves Guerin Serac. Uh, he was a French anti-communist and a staunch Roman Catholic activist. Uh, he was a veteran of the First Indochina War, the Korean War, and as well as the Algerian War of Independence. He was also a member of the 11th, 11th E Parachutist Brigade, uh, the shock troops. Um, 
and he also worked for the French and he also worked with French intelligence. Okay. Um, uh, and he was the, he was also the founding member of the OAS. So I mean, he mm-hmm. had his hands in all of these sort of things that we've mentioned in the last twenty minutes. Um. Uh, so in the nineties, uh, he ended. It came out he was one of the main instigators of the tr- strategy of tension in Italy. Uh, and was the main organizer of the 1969 Piazza Fontina bombing. Okay. Right, so that's one guy. Uh, he's about as bad as they come. Uh, and another guy named Stefano Delicciai, and I hope I'm saying that right, he was a neo-fascist Italian activist uh, founding two groups that were instrumental in the uh, years of lead because they were they were the groups that were typically used to to carry out these these attacks to blame on the left. One was Avangardia Nacional, and uh, he was also a member of a one called the Orden Nuevo, uh, or you know New Order, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as the founder of a uh, a more recent uh, a more recent uh, group called the Lega Nacional Populare in 1991. So mm. he he stayed around for a while. Um, he went on to become a wanted. A wanted man and uh, uh, was ended up being acquitted of, of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also a friend of the Grand Master of the P2 Masonic Lodge, we mentioned earlier, that was mm-hmm. big and instrumental in all of this. Uh, he was also suspected in, in, in uh, working with South America's Operation Condor and has been, been fingered for running concentration camps with uh, Klaus Barbie, you know, who we mentioned wow. earlier uh, in Bolivia. Okay. Um, now, a guy named Judge Salvini... Concentration camps in Bolivia. Yes. Who would they be putting in those concentration camps? Uh, people that the Bolivian government didn't like. Okay. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember. I don't I don't have all the facts on that. I'm still investigating Operation Gladio. Yeah, and Barbie Operation has... Operation Condor, rather. Barbie had some good experience in doing that. Yeah, so he was no... Nazi was no, came in handy. No shortage, hand. yeah. He okay. was good at that. Um, judge Salvini, a uh, federal judge... Uh, of the Italian inquiry into all of this stuff, uh, said that Agenture Press was, uh, quote, hard to give a precise definition, uh, but went on to say that it, quote, inspires and supports strategies of selected groups which then intervene according to a defined protocol against a situation they want to combat. Um, so, you know, this is all this is all in the context of talking about terrorism, yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, um, like most of the other stay-behinds, uh, this had, you know, they had two tasks. They were training and preparing for a Soviet invasion, although that, mm-hmm. that for, for the Agenda Press, that largely got sort of overlooked. Mm-hmm. The other one was to target political groups of the left using strategies of secret warfare. Um, now, Agenda Press started in 66. Um, as I mentioned, um, Savak was a member of the 11th E parachutists. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Agenture Press was made up primarily of escapees from that regiment. Mm. Um, um, they were sort of, a, as I mentioned earlier, they were sort of a runaway special forces brigade um, and tried to kill, you know, De Gaulle. Uh, Guerin's philosophy on political change was clear. Uh, he opted for violence and uh, sort of scoffed at nonviolent means of any type. And here are some quotes that I, I thought were just so, like... Crazy. I, I, I mm-hmm. typed them out. Uh, an Agenture Press document titled Our Political Activity was discovered at the end of 1974 and, and found in, I think, uh, Savak's office. And here's the quote. 
Our belief is that the first phase of political activity ought to be to create the conditions favoring the installment of chaos and all of the regime's structures. In our view, the first move we should make is to destroy the structure of the democratic state under the cover of communist and pro-Chinese activities. Moreover, we have people who have infiltrated these groups, and obviously we will have to author our actions to the ethos of the milieu. Um, propaganda and action of a sort uh, which will seem to have em, uh, emanated from our communist adversaries. Hmm. Um, uh, uh, he goes on, these operations will create a feeling of hostility towards those who threaten the peace of each and every nation uh, in the larger context, what he mm -hmm. means is communism, of course. Yeah. Um, now, the best document atrocity uh, that Agenter Press was involved in was one I mentioned earlier, the Piazza Fontana ma Massacre. Um, and what it was was a bomb that went off in the Piazza Fonta Fontana in, in, in Italy in 1969 and killed a bunch of people. There were four bombs in total that day, three of which went off in Rome, and I think one went off in Milan. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you know, it, it killed a bunch of people. And it, the whole idea was to send the country into such a state of panic that they um, that they would embrace a sort of a state of emergency mm -hmm. and um, similar almost in almost a little bit like Greece might be at the time sort of a military yeah. junta where rules and laws were sort of negotiable and what particular group were they blaming for this the left I mean any particular group um, the Red Brigades was one okay and and a couple yeah they of were ones. the whipping boy for a lot of these weren't they the yeah Italy I believe and so stuff. I yeah. believe so um, uh, it's interesting at 20 minutes after the I mean, bombing, I always it heard to be communist in the news when like in the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. Red Brigade came up all the time and they were like, you know, bad dudes all the time. So now you're telling me a lot of this stuff was done by this right wing group that was blamed on the Red mm -hmm. Brigade, basically. Yeah. Uh, it's important to remember that Giovanni Pellegrino, uh, he he was a, a another Italian judge, another federal judge. He mm -hmm. found out that it turns out the Italian Secret Service documented uh, the the fact that they believe that mid-level people uh, in this in this whole mm -hmm. Piazza Fontina massacre uh, was were in fact uh, aligned with other people, and this was in fact likely a false flag event carried out under the direction of the CIA. Um, mm -hmm. And this was even confirmed. Uh, but they sat on all of that stuff yeah. at the time. Yeah. They, those documents were, were were they ran off with them. Another really interesting guy was a a, a general named uh, Giandello Maletti who swore to the same thing in in federal testimony mm -hmm. under oath that uh, this was in fact likely a likely something that was carried out under the direction of under the loose direction at least of the CIA. Yeah. Um, uh, so that was sort of Agenter Press. Agenter Press was uh, sort of the clearinghouse uh, for a lot of the, the the hardcore training that went on from yeah. Spain, and and you know uh, they but, helped out in Operation Condor. But were they place. based in France? They were based in they were based in uh, uh, Portugal and Spain. Portugal, okay, yeah, mostly Portugal. Well, they were busy. They got around. <laughs> they uh, they they helped they helped Franco fight the Basque separatists. Yeah. Uh, they helped root out. Uh, communists from both Portugal and Spain. At some, for some reason, uh, I can't remember what I, I read at one time. Yeah. But for some reason, Franco got mad at him and threw him all out of Spain, huh. and then let him back in, and then threw him back out again. Uh, how were they exposed? Uh, well, all of this stuff came about. Um, they sort of everybody. It was kind of like an open secret. 
you know, that there was this organization happening, operating there in Portugal mm-hmm. that did all these bad things. Did they have its name? Did they know what it they was didn't called? Know the, they didn't know exactly the name. They didn't yeah. know, but they, they kind of knew it's like, you know, a bunch of dudes driving big cars hmm. who go around, you know, terrorizing the local townsfolk. And, hmm. um, in 1974, there was a thing called the, um, I think it was the Carnation Revolution, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a peaceful it was a peaceful thing that happened, and they ended up, the police ended up raiding uh, a bunch of the offices of, of people like Savak and mm-hmm. uh, Deli, Deli Chai, and they found all these papers. That's actually where this, where this quote I read earlier yeah. came from. Uh, it was a position paper that they found on this guy's desk hmm. uh, when, they, when, they, when they left. Um, so bit by bit, Adjunder Press kind of came out this way, but they had no way of like adequately connecting it mm-hmm. uh, up until 1990 when this Italian, these, these, there was been several Italian inquiries into it, and one Italian judge after another has said, well, guess what Adjunder Press really was, you know. Um, so that's kind of Adjunder Press in, press in the nut, nutshell. Mm. Um, one, one final thing. They were also suspected of uh, uh, assassinating a couple of folks um, uh, uh, General Humberto Delgado. He was the founder of the Portuguese National Liberation Front. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, like I said earlier, Salazar there in Portugal hmm. said, "I need somebody to deal with folks that I don't like. Mm-hmm. So I'll let you stay in my country if you if I tell you who to deal with." And one of them was Humberto Delgado. Um, another one was uh, Amilcar Cabral, uh, and as well as uh, Eduardo Mondale. Uh, leader of was he related to Walter Mondale or <laughs> uh, no? Uh, he was the leader of uh, Frelimo, which was a, a, yeah. a liberation movement. Okay, another another yeah, Pan African yeah. movement. Huh. Uh, a lot of the OAS guys ended up seeing a lot of action in Africa as well. Uh, huh. You know, bringing yeah, I their see s- Algeria being a big thing because of the French yep. interest. Um, but also in uh, uh, Mozambique and um, oh. uh, Cape Verde. Uh, a few other places too. Hmm. Uh, I haven't run all of those down, but okay. uh, Portuguese, you know, Portuguese still had a sure. foothold in a few colonies, and they didn't want to let them go, so they ended up using OAS muscle in some huh. cases huh. to uh, to do false flag operations there. Yeah, we still have Turkey to go through, uh, but you'd also mention about going through other countries to see about more Gladio. So oh either talk about Turkey, and we still have some Italy to talk about or, or some, some other remote places. Well, tell you what, why don't we, maybe we'll just take this up next month because I still feel like I still haven't, there's still more to reveal. We haven't gotten to okay. various other things. Um, um, let's let's talk about Turkey here for a little bit and then we'll just sort of... Call it a day? Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll leave it. Uh, Turkey, uh, it surprises a lot of people to see that Turkey was actually one of the major... Um, one of the it was the largest army in NATO after the United States, <laughs> and wow. uh, more than a third of the people border. always wondered about why they were invited into NATO. And of course, having a bridge into the Muslim world in the Middle East was always useful. Sure, but they got a lot of arms, so strong arms. So mm-hmm. so. Well, um, it's it's interesting to note uh, that, like I said, they they had a huge military, right? Uh, the other thing was that they share almost a third of a uh, a third of the entire border that NATO uh, shares with the Soviet Union is just Turkey mm-hmm. right so from that idea it's like it's incredibly important you know to see that mm-hmm. to see what's going on there right 
Um, really, I wonder if Turkey felt it was important to get in NATO to try to keep the Soviets out of it, or if it made them more of a bullseye when they were now, instead of being neutral, being an enemy itself. It's hard to say. Yeah. But they definitely, boy, they definitely were co-opted by the CIA. It okay. Was, it was it was bad. Um, so you've got because of the one third of the NATO's total borders with with Russia, mm-hmm. and they they serve as a great starting point for clandestine operations anywhere in the Middle East area, mm-hmm. as well as you know listening posts to Moscow and stuff. So um, in Turkey, there were really three groups uh, of interest when it comes to sort of clandestine warfare. Um, one was the secret services consisting of the MIT and the Special Warfare Department. The other was counter guerrilla. Now this is this is what they called their Gladio mm-hmm. Stay Behind Army was counter guerrilla. Uh, this was the sanctioned NATO secret army, except it wasn't all that secret, uh, but it definitely was army strength. It was huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was another one called the Gray Wolves, which had sort of a loose affiliation with both the other two, but sort of stood okay. on its own as sort of a uh, more of a racial identity hmm. organization. Um, uh, fascinating, but we won't talk too too much about the Gray Wolves. But um, uh, it's interesting. It it's important to kind of keep that stuff in play because when you start investigating this, you'll see that there's a real there's a real connection with all of these things. All of these things. Hmm. Um, so the way that they got at Turkey, um, the way that they decided to co-op Turkey, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, a tab in the back of a of a NATO sort of strategy uh, strategy mm-hmm. briefing uh, said that they could co-opt the strong national Turkish pan-Turkism ideals uh, of Turkey and use them to use them to sort of guide the country. Okay. Uh, and the idea is uh, pan-Turkism. Most people probably don't know what that is. It's used to describe the idea of a political, cultural, and ethnic unity of all Turkish-speaking people. Um, and it, it, it can be seen to at least loosely parallel um, European developments like pan-Slavism or pan-Germanism uh, or other sort of loosely based national race theory uh, type ideologies. You know, I can't think of other regions that are Turkish per se outside of their current lands except for Cyprus. Well, there's uh, uh, they would say that there's a lot. There's Azerbaijan and oh, Kazakhstan. Okay. Okay. And, um, mm. I don't know how they draw. I'm, huh. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in that. Well, they were firmly under the USSR at that time. Yeah. Those other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, you could see how they would want to do something about uh-huh. that, you know. Um, huh. You know, my, my Turkish brothers over there across the Iron Curtain, yeah. you know, kind of a thing. Um, so, anyway, this, they had this tab uh, in the back uh, of a strategy concepts briefing, uh, and... They said, if we can do this, we can use a strategy of tension very effectively in all of this stuff. And so for Turkey, the strategy of tension started early, and it pretty much got worse huh. from there. It got it got to ridiculous levels by the 80s. Um, uh, the, one of the first incidents was the bombing of a pro-Turkish museum in Greece, where they then blamed on the Greek dissidents to get the Turks all fired up. Hmm. Um, um, so it's to be noted that... Uh, it's to be noted as well that Turkey went through three military coups in the space of just a few years. Uh, the place where the CAA concentrated its efforts in regards to shaping Turkish society uh, was these gladio things, uh, and they, they would fold them into the secret services and, to a lesser extent, the gray wolves. And specifically within the special warfare department, hmm. that was like their thing. Th- those were the bad guys. Uh, in the in you know they were the people who were really doing mm-hmm. the, the the dirty tricks and the bad stuff, 
And unsurprisingly, that's where the CIA concentrated their power hmm. uh, in, in their stay-behind network that they set up. Hmm. Um, so it's to be noted that the Special Warfare Department was heavily involved in the coup of May 27th, 1967, uh, as, and even more heavily involved in the coup of May 12th, 1971. Uh, and, and the last coup, uh, mm-hmm. on September 12th, 1980, they basically were the coup. All mm. the people that took over were Gladio members, and, really? and the muscle that the muscle that the muscle that perpetrated it were uh, were Gladio stay behinders. Um, it's 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 interestingly it's to be noted that during the the coup of 1980, President. Now wait a minute, is communism really that strong there, or who would they be trying to provide a bulwark against internally in the country? Uh, you know, that's one of the things that I always wondered. I didn't think that communism was especially strong in Turkey. Yeah, but I think this was one of those things where they just needed. Uh, they wanted to set up this strong network, and they just kind of kept going and going and going, and pretty soon it's like oh. things got haywire. Uh, I think I think at a local and uh, a, a local and sort of county level, uh, the local cops are, are are awful corrupt, and there's just mm-hmm. a lot to be, uh, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room mm-hmm. there. So, um, there's just I was just wondering if if there was any Muslim nationalist type things back in those days that they were using it to counter that um i don't know i know that i know that after the fall of the iron curtain and after they they pretty much kind of stopped using the gladio structures by 86 87 even before the fall yeah um but it's to be noted that they took a lot of these a lot of these former gladio players and they would take them and dress them up as uh Various other factions that mm. were not liked in Turkish society, uh, and they would either have them go impersonate Kurds and shoot people, huh. or uh, yeah, you know, I forgot that was a big group that they're battling, and yeah. still to this day, the PKK. Yeah, yeah, they would uh, they would take a lot of these people who were wanted wanted for for various crimes that they had done, mm-hmm. and they would dress them up as uh, PKK guys and have them go and. Just do horrible stuff for villages. Really? Like killing hundreds of people and... The definition of false flag terror. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, it, I, I don't even want to get into it. It's so bad. I've read some of the accounts and it's just... You leave you crying. Um, but anyway, a, as I mentioned, it's to be noted that during the coup of 1980, President Carter, who was at the opera when he heard about the coup, during an intermission, he called up Paul Hens, who was the CIA station, mm-hmm. chief, station chief for Turkey and at the time and told him... <laughs> he says, "Paul, your people have just made a coup." Uh, so, you know. Wow. Um, even Billy, even Jimmy Carter knew yep. about Gladio. That's really bad if you and I didn't, and Jimmy Carter did. Well, he may not have known about the whole, yeah, the whole kit and caboodle. He just knew that. He just knew that. I mean, who knows how much he knew? Right. That uh, it seems to me like what went on in this what went on in this whole Gladio thing was. Uh, in 45 to 50, everybody knew what they were supposed to know. And then as people started falling off, uh, certain people were intentionally kept out of the loop. Mm. And uh, simultaneous to that, you saw the mission creep going on, you know, where you had five five guys who knew about it there mm. in, in, say, Rome, you know. Yeah. Uh, piano Operation Piano Solo was Giovanni De Lorenzo, who was the head of yeah. the Italian Secret Service at the time. Uh, uh William Harvey, who was one of the station chiefs there, mm-hmm. a guy named Mr. Stone, 63-64, Renzo Roca, who was also a uh, um, uh, 
he was he was he wasn't the head of the stay behind, but he was like the the, the, yeah. the head guy with boots on the ground yeah. kind of a thing. The four of those guys conspired to overthrow the government, and they used the Operation Gladio thing. Um, You're so, freaking me out that you even remember all these names off the top of your head. That's that's pretty <laughs> spooky. But you you know, I wonder if when new pres- U.S. presidents were installed, if they were debriefed. On all these groups, that's hard uh, to say. That's there's been a there's been a stonewalling silence, yeah. uh, just generally from the from the Western intelligence on that. Nobody really knows. They haven't yeah. formally fessed up as yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. There's an interesting. How were they able to confirm something that was for sure confirmed through existence, other than just some kind of writer that says, "Oh, by the way, do you know these exist?" Uh, uh, well, there was the Italian inquiry. Okay. Um, you know, state, federal judges, they yeah. dug up the documents and they found fragmentary data and put it all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, one Which I of believe Webster Tarpley, if that was the one involving Aldo Moro's death, uh-huh. he was a part of that. He was a big part of their investigation. Webster Tarpley shot yeah. Aldo Moro? He did not shoot Aldo Moro, that, that I know of. But they brought know. him as a key investigator. Oh, 1978. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was uh, um, one of the people involved in that is in jail. Uh, Vincenzo Vinciguerra. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned him earlier in the show. Yeah. Uh, he's been he's been singing like a bird for for years now, because he's an interesting case in all this because he was used to do various bad things. Yeah. Um, and um, he had decided on his own in nineteen early in nineteen sixty nine that he was the only way to get the country to go. Uh, sort of fascist like he was. He's an un... Mm -hmm. You know, he makes no bones about being a fascist. Yeah. Uh, The only way to do that is to get the country to erupt into a state of panic so that they will love their government. And so what he he perpetrated was the Petiano... uh, the Petiano massacre where he put a bomb in a truck of a... in the trunk of a... of a car and called the... called the secret police to go out and investigate. When they did, it blew up and killed him. And, uh... The Secret Service there in Italy saw that and said, "Hey, why don't you come and join us? <laughs> and uh, you know, we'll give you we'll give you bigger targets and you know, da 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 da." And um, once he figured it out, um, uh, he quit he quit bombing stuff. He he saw that no, I'm not doing this because of me. I'm doing this because there seems to be three levels of three levels going on here. There's me who's doing that doing the atrocities. Mm-hmm. Then there are people above me who are doing it. And then there are people who are above them, like presidents and heads of state, who want things to happen in, in Italy. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're co-opting the people below me, so the other people in turn co-opt me to go and do what I did. He walked into a police station in 1980 and said, you've been looking for me. I'm, I've done all these atrocities, and I can yeah. tell you how, why, and all this stuff. And uh, he sits in jail today. Because of all this, he's un- he's unrepentant about it because yeah. he says he believes in what he did, and uh, he says yeah. it's it was the right thing to do. Um, hmm. f- really, a fascinating character, um, wow. in a in a in a very dark way. But yeah. that's one of the ways that we uh-huh. know about a lot of this stuff. Okay. Is he's written several books on it, huh. and uh, he talks about it uh, at length. Um, yeah. Anything else on Turkey you want to talk about? Um, well, I'm, gosh, there's there's just one final thing. Okay. Um, we got about ten minutes total left on the show, including our wrap up here. So. Okay. Well, tell you what. Why don't I just? Why don't I just? I'll leave it with this final quote from the vice director of Turkish Secret Service, who got busted for uh, quote uh, collaborating with the CIA in 1977. Uh, 
He dismissed the accusations as completely ridiculous and, quote, ignorant of the most basic facts of the Turkish security system. He says, the CIA has a group of at least 20 persons which work together with the MIT and within the MIT are the highest organ. They assure both the exchange of intelligence as well as the cooperation and joint operations both within and outside Turkey. Regarding interrogation methods and techniques, he said, all technical equipment that we use has been made available by the CIA. A large part of our personnel has been trained by the CIA abroad. The complete equipment of the interrogation chambers from the simplest to the most complex device stems from the CIA. Hmm. He's the vice director of Turkish Secret Service saying all of this. Um, and they're just really an extension of CIA operations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one more one more guy, Talat Turan. He's kind of one of the heavy hitters when it comes to investigating a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff. He's very old now. Uh, he was, uh, as a retired general in 1964, uh, he retired early. During the coup of 71, he was on the outs politically with the new regime, uh, and he found himself uh, a target of a prolonged detention and subsequent torture by the state. He was detained in the infamous uh, Zaberni Villa, um, where Turkish torturers got their experience working on socialists who mm-hmm. sort of emigrated to Turkey during the 50s. Yeah. Um, according to Talat's own testimony, uh, Ayup Ozolkas, chief of the MIT's interrogation team for the combat of communism, blindfolded me and tied up my arms and feet. Then they told me that I was now in the hands of a counter-guerrilla unit, that is the Operation Gladio structure mm-hmm. there, uh, under, operating under the high command of the army outside the Constitution and the laws. They told me that they considered me as their prisoner of war and that I was sentenced to death. In this villa, I was tied up, arms and feet chained to a bed for a month, and tortured in ways which a human being has difficulty to imagine. Um, How long? A month. And uh, uh, this guy was a former, a former general, you know, hmm. uh, who's. Uh, there, I guess the reason he got into this, according to, according to some guy who translates some of this stuff, uh, the reason he got into this was most likely because you know it was like a form of therapy. Of just the horrible events that he went yeah, through during that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Um, we'll tell you what. Let me let me take. Oh gosh. We'll we'll just have to carry on to some of this stuff next month, okay. perhaps. Okay. Um, I, I I guess if I were to summarize this in our last minute or two, um, would you agree with the statement that some say, based on this kind of information, that Virtually all, or the overwhelming amount of terrorism, is state-sponsored. Well, certainly in Western Europe, um, okay. you know, Operation Gladio. If we were going to extrapolate just from Operation Gladio, I would say yes. Okay. You know, uh, you know, Operation. We didn't even get into uh, the hundreds of bombings during the years of lead in Italy. Yeah. We didn't get into the Toxum Square massacre, where a bunch of a bunch of people shot up uh, a huge rally of half a million people in, in I think it was Istanbul. Um, at Toxum Square, mm-hmm. a huge trade unions. They all got together. Uh, a bunch of people started shooting at the um, uh, mm-hmm. the podium, and they continued to shoot for like 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. And thousands of police there mm-hmm. offering us tra- crowd control. Nobody, nobody bothered to run into the hotel yeah. and actually try and go onto the balcony and try and stop them. And these aren't extremist groups operating this, unless you call the CIA an extremist group. Yeah, well, the guy who, the uh, the Toxum Square massacre, one of the guys who was involved with him was Hiram Abbas, a guy who Dwayne Claridge, the head of the CIA station, he was a station chief mm-hmm. in Istanbul, 
Uh, he said in his memoirs, an agent for all seasons, uh, that Hiram was one of a kind. In his time, he was the best intelligence gatherer in all of Turkey. Same guy who was one of the shooters during the Toxum Square massacre. Huh. So he's being praised by the CIA station, station chief while at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, hosing down a crowd of half a million people, shooting at 35 people died at that. Yeah. Oh, 38 people, I'm sorry. Wow. Well, and the other thing I guess we we got to not only remind ourselves but share with other people is that when we see the events that happen in the world and on our news, the last thing we should do is just take carte blanche what our government, other governments, or our media say are the reasons of what's going on. Gosh, yeah. I, and the Bible tells you not to do that either mm-hmm. because it says what they do is is that they work together to deceive the nations of the earth. Mm-hmm. So... That's that's the motto from this, and this is something that we need to pass on to our friends, to our family members, mm-hmm. even if they hate to hear about it from us, to our church folk. We need to email people when we see church people getting all fired up about something because the government's saying this is important, mm-hmm. or other people, and, and clarify that's, that's not what this is. I, I, I guess if I had one, if I had one thing that sort of puts me at odds with other with other people that I speak with. Mm-hmm. Even Christians? Even Christians. I, yeah. I would guess maybe even especially Christians. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that they don't realize that um, the, deba- that the debate has been defined for them already in their own minds. Yeah. They've been... Uh, the prop- propaganda has worked on them in such a way where that they've drawn a box about what they think... What they think fits in there is good and not good. And you know, yeah. if they were just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees tried to do to Jesus, they would ask him these questions about the resurrection or about exactly. the law that are based upon like here's the battle between the two of our ideologies. We'll try to lead you into obviously falling into it, and he would just step out of the box. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, that's that's very much in God's nature is to is to move beyond to solve a problem in a way you would never expect. Right. Um, yeah, even even the the and and not to embrace a reality that's limited by our little ideological yeah. whims. Even even I am that I am. Uh, from from some experts in Hebrew, they say that really, really probably is is more more verb like in function and and kind of should come out in our language more appropriately. Um, uh, I will be what I whatever what I I will be whatever what I. I will be whatever I will be. Mm-hmm. The idea being that God breaks through, um, yeah. you know. And nowhere do you see that more than in the resurrection. Yeah. You know, yeah. like he died, mm-hmm. but he came back. Yeah. Nobody else, nobody, nobody else does that. You Which know, to me is the definition of transcendence when breaking through. That's is, it. Is being yeah. transcendent. It's it's in in many ways you can view the Bible. Um, you can view the the battle between mm-hmm. the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and Jesus uh, in sort of a uh, in a sense that like they kept trying to put him in a in a cage and he would step into the cage and then step right through the bars. Yeah, you know, and they like, whoa. And we're called to be transcendent mm-hmm. with these petty ideologies that now you have proven are being manipulated. Sure. Things to manipulate arguments. If we embrace a biblical worldview, it almost demands that we transcend. Those petty ideologies. You know, um, yes, it's 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 about loving people. Um, gosh, there's a. I hate to give I hate to give a, a a plug out for another podcast. 
Yeah. Uh, but uh, Why do you hate to do that? Oh, I don't know. I feel weird about it. Brother, yeah. there was something that really spoke to me today uh-huh. um, that was really powerful, and I would recommend okay. uh, after our future Quake fans have listened to this, they, mm-hmm. they, they cruise on over there. Uh, Victor's story over at uh, Nowhere to Run mm-hmm. is a guy who really... Chris White's uh, Yeah, Chris White's show. Yeah, Nowhere mm-hmm. to Run. If you type in Nowhere to Run Victor uh, in... Um, in Google mm-hmm. and, and download that show. It's just very powerful. It's a guy mm-hmm. who's who uh, may be up on conspiracy theories and whatever, but mm-hmm. really he sort of he he's walked through that and um, he's out there like loving people radically. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, God in many ways had led him out in the wilderness, and he found the greatest joy in that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Uh, it's it's just go go listen to it. You know, okay. It's powerful. All right. All right. Um, listeners, email us and let us know if you found this interesting. If you'd like to hear some more about it, please email us. I'm going to say just a real quick prayer, if you don't mind, that the Lord can use some please. constructively from this mm-hmm. information. Heavenly Father, I just pray for Tom and I and for all our future and listeners right now that you would take this disturbing information, information that sort of rocks our world from how we understood the world we were growing up uh, works. Uh, a, a lot of our friends here have embraced a lot of this and understand it more, all of us to different degrees. But, Lord, it should motivate us to share information as we see fit and opportunities exist with our friends, our family, to explain to them not to get caught in an ideological trap that actually can limit our ability to minister. Uh, It causes us to demonize people when we really don't know what's going on in the world. We don't understand all the, the real events going on that there are people manipulating us, wanting us to hate other people, or mm-hmm. groups, people we've never even met, people we don't know in total. Uh, Lord, but they're people you died for. We pray that we would not fall into that trap and be manipulated by other people, even people who look like us and sound like us, and that we would encourage other people not to, that we would understand that the nations of the world and their leaders are are who they are. And while we try to do our best to be uh, salt and light and do our civic duties as citizens that we're required to under self-government, that we also understand the realities of the people who are powerful people that run these things and never rely on these institutions to solve things that can only be done through the spirit and through, through your body. Lord, we thank you so much for this and your insight. Please put in our hearts and minds what you would have us to do to take from this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I got a few last little comments, real quick, as we're okay. uh, wrapping up the show here. Sure. Um, next week, um, we—I'm uh, uh, going to be out of town. I'm going to be with Mrs. Future, and I got a big stack of books that I'm going to be going through at a parts unknown location uh, for some further research. It'll come up in this show. One of the things, big stack, hopefully going to cause some some very interesting things going on. I think you've got some personal details you're working with the next few weeks it's to pretty insane over here get some things taken care yeah. of you but we recorded a show back at the end of january just for a circumstance like this um we had a lot of really really great stories that weren't time dated weren't time sensitive but they really need to be covered and we never mm-hmm. got to them mm-hmm. and uh, it's a brand new show it's not a rerun but it's a show covering some things that uh you may hear a few things that sort of feel like they're like beginning of 2011-ish, but there's some real transcendent stories there that I think you'll enjoy. Probably be one of our better shows. Uh, and before I forget, I want to ask our friend Merv to come in to tell everyone how to contact us at Future Quake. 
Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. So that's it. It's time for us to split out of here, Brother Tom. I appreciate all your incredible work you did in putting this together. Well, and like I, f- I feel so inadequate because we haven't even covered like a tenth of what went on. You know, you've covered a lot of material though today, haven't you? I feel like it's I mean, you covered a ton. You talked for two hours. Yeah, but like it's not even close to all of it. Yeah. All of the stuff that goes on. You know. Well, that way we don't have to shut down Future Quake just yet. Well, you even know, though people may want us to. Once we get to yeah, well. I'm, okay. I'm glad. I'm glad it. I'm glad it was positive. Because, Thank you for yeah. doing it. Appreciate it, brother, for you doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we sure uh, we we hope you listen to our show next week. We'll be back with another um, uh, brand new show the following week. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's if we don't have a rapture event. Uh, it'll be right about that same time on May twenty first. Twenty first. Harold Camping is right. Uh, if we survive that date, then we'll. We've already got uh, an interview recorded, a very novel interview uh, for the end of the month, and all sorts of plans leading up to our time in uh, Branson with some uh, some presentations that will hopefully knock their hats in the creek. But um, we love you all. I look forward to your emails. And until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.